This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. It's Friday. Yes, it's the Friday launch. We're going to uh, seriously prepare you for life and uh, set you up for the weekend. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, is it going to be a good weekend, of course, right? Because you now know what to do on your weekends. Of course, we'll be listening to um, Jeffrey Liam Simpson as he takes on movies, entertainment, media of all sorts in his show Screen Cleaning, which will be the third hour of the Matt Townsend Show. I'm so excited for you, Jeff. This is a big day. Me too. It's going to be a great show. It's our 10th show. No, really? Yes. Wow. It feels like you've only had like eight. Hmm. Anyway, we'll get to that fun. Um, That's hour number three of the program. But uh, you got two hours before that. This first hour, we'll be talking about crowdfunding your health care. You know, you've had somebody... Uh, maybe um, dealing with cancer, trying to pay off their bills. They they then send out a little uh, crowdfunding GoFundMe account and ask you to please donate money. What's the long-term impact of people turning to crowdfunding to pay for health care? Does it change the game a little bit? Are there things you need to watch out for? We'll be speaking with an expert on that subject and um, you know, giving us just a few little uh, basic rules, things to watch out for because – you know, usually with healthcare, you want some privacy. And watch out for the people that, uh, you know, want a nice wedding dress so they take to crowdfunding. Right, exactly. Or they just take to their uh, their little bridesmaids and make them pay for it. That's right. We had that story the other day. Because if you're a decent person, you know that's the that's the way to do it. Have, your, have the people <laughs> that are there to support you um, pay for it. Why not? Why not? Hey, by the way, um, boy, great news out. Uh, Beyonce showed her twins, those cute little twins. That's all over my Twitter feed for some reason. I guess that tells you my, where my Twitter feed went. I guess. Kind of That's lost, on you. Seemed to lost, lose control of my old Twitter feed. Yeah, I've seen that several times. Oh, <clears throat> goody, goody. We've got a lot to talk about. We'll get to all of that fun. Plus, apparently, um, uh, Donald is uh, he's in France. Celebrating Bastille Day still. Is he still there? Well, I think he's on his way home now. I'm not sure. But um, made a little comment to the president, uh, Macron's wife. Yeah. Yeah, about how she looks. I asked my wife about that. What did your wife say? I was like, so let's just say, for instance. An example. uh, Someone, not me, a man you meet, walks up to you first time they meet you and comments on your figure and says, wow. Wow. Yeah, you put yourself together nice. How does that come across? And she just, I mean, she just looks up and she goes, I read that. Oh, she did read it. Okay. Not well. So she was really yeah. not. Mm. And I, I'm just coming from, would it be seen as a compliment? Would it be seen yeah. as anything other than what it's being taken as, which is like highly offensive. A lot of people Don't are do offended that. by it. You but know, I, I would be. I wouldn't be. I would be flattered. I'm like, you noticed that I've lost an inch of my gut? Yeah. But... It's also probably not where you, you don't lead with that. It's sexist because men have been doing that to women for centuries. Right. The problem is no one, no women ever do it to men. So it's like, Ugh. did you say the Trump family has been doing no, no, that no, for men. centuries? I said oh, men okay. in general. Yeah. So it's anyway. It was a little weird. It's com- it comes off as a little weird. Yeah. 
And seeing as it's never happened to me, she says it's it's never happened to her, but that well, kind of thing, it's eh. – Tell her to wait for the Christmas party because I'm like going to say something. It's like <laughs> the people call you honey. Yeah. Oh, I, honey. You're like – But if it's a waitress, I like that. You do? Yeah. Is, our, is that what they call them? Waitress? Server? Yeah, waitress. Yeah. I like that. Hey, honey. Why is the English language such a, la- a minefield? It's of, getting really – it's really yeah, complicated. It's because you can't – you don't call a flight attendant a stewardess anymore. Right. Do you call a waitress a waitress, I guess? Our mail was delivered. I called it a mailman. And obviously, it was a woman yeah. that delivered. My boy goes, that was a woman. I'm like, oh. It's a male person. Why is it that only waitresses call us honey? I don't know. I think because they want a tip. Is that part of the code? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, if you call somebody honey three times, your tip goes up 12%. So yeah. we're pro- I don't even There's think we're data. supposed to call them waitress anymore. It's just server, right? I, I like to just call them friends. Mm. Friends at a local place where I hang. And they just happen to <laughs> feed me. everyone may know your name. Yeah. That's a great place. Friends don't charge friends to serve them, though. No. But friends pay tips and pay for things that aren't free. So, yeah, probably, probably not the best move to, to comment on somebody else's wife's figure. Yeah. It's weird. It's just a little I, – I just think he doesn't – I mean, I think that might work, I guess, if you're running – I don't know. like a, He sees it as a compliment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it is. It's like – well, it would be like every time you met him, you, you talk about his hair. Right. There's just a point. You don't, you don't bring up another world leader's hair. You probably ought not bring up another world leader's wife's figure. Mm. Wow. You really do you exercise? You must work out. You must work out. I guess that's <laughs> You're a good ripped. I guess that's a good point because apparently she had to work very hard on her figure just as he has to work very hard to keep up the His facade. Hair. Oh, the yeah. hair, I mean. The facade. The, you said it, not me. Your words. It's just some industrial stapling. It's fine. It's all good. It's all good. So We'll get to all that fun. Uh, more Trump. Uh, always. That's what's great about this presidency is there's always something. Yeah. You know? A lot of presidents you'd be bored with by now. And there's even some interesting advice from past presidents. Oh, wow. President Bush, President Clinton. Mm. They're giving some advice as well. So I've got a little uh, update great. on that. Good stuff coming straight ahead. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? A stunning twist in the case of four men who disappeared this month in Pennsylvania. A person of interest in the disappearance confessed Thursday to murdering the missing men. This out of the Washington Post. Remember, his name was Cosmo DiNardo. Oh, I know. Confessed to his participation or commission in the murders of the four men. The defense attorney, Paul Lang, says, according to ABC News, the 20-year-old Donardo offered his full confession in exchange for prosecutors not seeking the death penalty. Lang says Donardo told where the four bodies are located and parts of his confession and that the motivation for the killings will be revealed in time. Uh, he has deep remorse over the murders. He actually walked out, you know, the... They bring him out, kind of the perp walk in front of the media. He actually talked to the media. No one ever talks to the media. Know, the guy weird. actually talked. Apparently, as it says here, authorities in Pennsylvania have taken a uh, second person of interest into custody in connection with the death of the four men. Another person. So there's person. more people involved with this. Donardo Cosmo, the district attorney says, has been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Okay. So we'll have to see where that did, uh Did these four men know each other? Not sure. Holy cow. The story just popped up on my radar a couple days ago, and you're like, there's four guys just 
It just seemed odd. It's tragic. And then again, he ruined a good and then, mascot of course, name. The name Cosmo. That really Cosmo caught my attention. Cougar. Speaker Paul Ryan said Thursday that he will work with the House Sergeant at Arms to modernize the dress code in the House and Speaker's lobby after complaints about a rule that women must have their shoulders covered. Ryan faced backlash over the decades-old rule after a female reporter was recently barred from the Speaker's lobby because she was wearing a sleeveless dress. Decorum mm. is important, especially for the institution and the dress code in the chamber and in the lobby makes sense, Ryan said. But we also need to bar otherwise uh, accepted... We don't need to bar otherwise accepted contemporary business attire, so look for a change in that soon. Oh, okay. The woman tried to shove like pieces of paper Upper, up on her oh, shoulders. Like shoulder pads? So that she would cover her shoulders through oh, her really? dress, and they still wouldn't let her in. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, uh, no, that won't work. And take so. those newspapers off your shoulders. <laughs> like newspaper stuffed in there. Um, th- I found this story very interesting. The Green Bay Packers are yeah. a public, publicly owned NFL team. franchise, yeah. The city of Green Bay, the citizens of Green Bay own the team. Seems like a great idea. So the information about the team, financials, those kind of things public. are public knowledge, and oh, that's how you get to find out how much yeah. money the NFL is making per okay, team, right? right? So it says the Packers received $244 million as their equal share of the NFL's national revenue, most of which comes from TV contracts, but which also includes road game revenue sharing. Wow. Multiply that by 32 teams, and that means the NFL dispersed $7.8 billion in national revenue, a 9.6 increase from the previous year. The Packers also disclosed an additional $197 million in local revenue. That's what they pulled in on their own last year between ticket sales, How merchandising, $197 million. Wow. So almost $200 million from ticket sales, merchandising, sponsorships for a grand total of $441 million. Nearly half a billion dollars for a Green Bay franchise, which Green Bay isn't a huge market. No, it's really small. Unbelievable. How many games per season? Like what, 16? 16 or something? Yeah, so they get eight home games. Unbelievable. Wow. The wow. exact numbers for other teams' local revenue isn't available, but uh, Paul Bennell, the vice president of finance and administration, said the Packers are the ninth in the league. Okay. So in 441 revenue. million is ninth. They're, they're in, a huge uh, franchise name. I mean, their yeah. brand is big. But mm. So revealed in the Packers financial disclosures is that Green Bay has 349 million just in reserve. Man. So before the team even plays a game or yeah. does anything, just the TV contracts, they end up with 244 million. To know you're starting the year with 244 million. That will pay for your entire payroll for the season, right? Yeah. And then you know, so when it comes to players and all that, it's all covered. The rest of the money you make off ticket sales and game day and all that, that all goes yeah. into the team. Uh, what do you like? What do you think about the idea of a city owning? Like, I like the idea that the community owns the team. Yeah. Because it's a little, it was a risk mm-hmm. for the people, but now they get to enjoy all the profits. And if it's succeeding, the community succeeds. If it's struggling, yeah. instead of some communities like San Diego that are supposed to pay for the stadium, but don't necessarily gather as much benefit. Right. And then you get your team, they decide they don't like the stadium, and yeah, they kind of hold you hostage, here. and they leave and go to L.A. L.A. Where no one's going to pay attention to That's them at right. all. And there's a lot of smog. You yeah. know what city I hear is getting a football team? What? Townton Abbey. Oh, starting nice. the, yeah. Rearing its ugly head again. Pardon? Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that Townton Abbey. Check it out on SimCity. Final story, drivers in Oregon got a slimy surprise Thursday afternoon when a truck full of eels 
overturned on Highway 101. The eels were on their way to Korea for, as it says, quote, consumption when the seafood livestock truck carried them or was <laughs> it rolled over. The Oregonian states it was decidedly disgusting, a decidedly disgusting scene. There's photos. Ooh. Type in They're- Seattle. They all slime or something. Uh, it created yeah. delays, but there were no injuries. Just dozens of horrifying eels all over the highway. It fell on cars when it tipped over. All, all the all the eels and their natural sliminess, and the cars just are just oh, it's disgusting. Can't you just imagine all the the excitement of the eels as they were all boarding the truck, thinking that they were going like on an excursion, right? Where are you guys going? We're going to consumption. We're going to go to Korea and be consumed. <laughs> Unbelievable. And then yeah, they the over on the highway and the, the fire department had to show up to clean it off. They said it was just just disgusting. Just it's there's just ill slime everywhere. Oh, it's it all is, over the car. It looks like a car had been slimed. And ill juice, and then it, I guess that they're all alive. So they're all, the, you see them; they're right there on the got, highway. Then the highway is soaking wet, and then eels are squiggling and moving around, and whatever the word is. You know what, though, I'm sure some do. of those people are grateful because they were looking for an excuse to get their car washed anyway. Oh yeah, for sure. And then some people are like, oh, "Lunch." Well, uh, which people? A couple of cars. The front ends were kind of bashed in too, so they may have ran into the truck as it tipped over. I bet um, you would have wished you were there in your VW so you would have had an excuse to get rid of it. Maybe, yeah. Eels, I did not know that eels are also known as hagfish. Yes. Because I've seen a lot of uh, documentaries on hagfish. I, I love myself a good documentary a, on a hagfish. A delicacy, apparently, in some parts of this world. Yeah. And, by the way, a super fun accident. Not here. But isn't don't you find an eel accident a better accident than maybe a chicken accident? Because we've had a lot of those. Right. I think if you're going to mix up – Or bacon. We've had some bacon had accidents. Bacon, yeah. Uh-huh. See, there's food that you want to eat and it kind of makes you sad when it rolls over on the freeway and it's all wasted. Totally. But you can roll over as many eel trucks as you want. I'm good with that. Yeah. There's no way in the world I'm eating an eel. So go ahead. No, but you've had eel, right? No. Or hagfish, no. But you – Most you, most most forms of you ever fish. Had, okay. No, not really. Yeah, you got to try it. Well, I've eaten some. My wife has forced me, basically. What about the slime? Have you ever just tried the slime? No, no. Left the slime on wherever it was. Hmm. Right there. That is exactly what it sounded like. what it sounded like. like. Well, that and a truck rolling over on the freeway. Yeah. We don't really have that sound effect. So let's let's just get clear here. Hmm. Uh, If I went up to your wife at the Christmas dinner and I looked at her and I said, hey, Kelly's her name, right? That's it. Kelly, you're in such good shape. Yeah. Not good. Don't like the first thing that. I say pretty much, hey, she might you're punch, in good shape. She might punch you in the face. If you had a couple of drinks in your system, it might be understandable though. But, but what if – it's even worse though how you say it. Oh, yeah. Why? Like you're in good shape. Yeah. Like where did that come well, from? Because that implies you've been standing across the room yeah. making an assessment and that's creepy too. And it could be offensive depending on where you put the emphasis. Or, or emphasis. Or you put – you know, a question mark. You're in good shape. Oh wow! You call that good shape? <laughs> it's just strange. You're in good shape. He could have said, "It's good to meet you," since I believe yeah. this was the first time he met her. Unless she was at the yeah. G20, what some call the G19. Yeah. 
Because it seemed like there was 19 that were together and one guy that really wasn't with the rest of them. But that was a whole different story. Was that was that China? No, no, that, no. The guy, how about, was it, was it, I'm sure it was Putin. Though. No, no, no. He was the off one, one. That was President Trump. He's oh, kind of he was away that one. from the 20. I was trying to figure out. It's always like, it was, I, it was, I thought it was maybe the North Koreans because there's, no, always, there's not, always the one that's just off. They're not part of the G20. So it wasn't any of those extreme. Was no. it Venezuela's leader? No. He's, no. again, not hmm. probably in office anymore. Yeah. It was, it was ours? It was, the, it was our guy, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's weird. Um, so President Clinton and President Bush, I guess, were speaking at an event. Um, uh, and they, they stressed a really important point about having humility oh. in the Oval Office. Really? And then President Bush gave what is now the quote of the day on CNN. Mm. You ready? It's a great quote. He said, I think it's really important to know what you don't know. And listen to people who do know what you don't know. Wow. It's really profound. Right. It's important to know what you don't know. Mm. And then listen to the people who do know what you don't know. Right. Yeah. Just a good lesson by past president. There's maybe a way to simplify that to a T-shirt. It'd be a big T-shirt. You'd have to be a big person to carry such a big. Well, wow, back to figures. We're yeah. back to complimenting so about, your wow, surging figures. That T-shirt is sure big. <laughs> just say, surround yourself with smart people. Yeah, and listen to them. Don't you wonder what all like when the presidents get together, like for a meeting like that or a speech together? Do you think they talk about President Trump? I think they talk about how they're glad they're not in the office anymore. Like, oh, it's good to be a past president. That's right. You know, you talk about slogans on a T-shirt. They have those ones that are already made that say, I'm with stupid with uh-huh. an arrow. Yeah. Just cross out words, several words of that and just say, I'm stupid. And then people will know that you need help. That's a good point. Don't two, words. two words. Um, two words. Two okay. words. Okay. We're going to take a break. When we come back, great interview coming up um, on crowdfunding healthcare. Should we? Is this the model of healthcare where we have to raise the funds, or does it really make more sense that we we just create a really good healthcare plan? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you navigate through the more difficult issues of life. We'll be back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, everyone runs into unexpected medical costs that they didn't plan for at some point. So what do you do in that situation? Recently, people have turned to crowdfunding money from friends and friends of friends through some sites like GoFundMe or YouCaring.com. But is there a downside to funding your medical costs that way? Here to talk about it is Dr. Jeremy Snyder. Jeremy is an associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. He received his Ph.D. in philosophy from Georgetown University and wrote a wonderful article uh, titled, As Patients Turn to Medical Crowdfunding, Concerns Emerge About Privacy. He wrote that on theconversation.com. Jeremy, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me on. Boy, this is such an interesting age we live in because, you know, it used to be if you didn't have the money, you didn't have the money. You'd maybe go ask your family members for some help if they could. But now you put together a really advanced campaign, put it out on your social media, have friends forward it, and you're raising money through crowdfunding. Is is there a downside to this? It seems like you're getting the money in. It's saving lives. Yeah, and, and you're right. There's certainly lots to be happy about with crowdfunding. It's 
literally a lifesaver for some people and can create a lot of really wonderful opportunities for people who are in a really tight position. But what I've been trying to do is flag some of the less obvious concerns that should be associated with it. Uh, so one of the big ones that I flagged in the article that you mentioned is just around privacy. So uh, how these campaigns work are you have to put forward a lot of information about yourself, about your family life, your medical situation. Uh, on these crowdfunding websites like GoFundMe, they advise you to put in videos or mm. images of you with your family, images of you in your hospital bed. Uh, you're asked to regularly update these campaigns with what medicine you're receiving, you know, if your cancer's in remission or if it's returned, all these really private details about your life in order to make feel, people feel connected to you, but also to sort of make it clear that you're an actual person with actual needs, uh, given that it might not just be people who know you who are contributing. And that requires a huge loss of privacy in order to do that. That's not the sort of thing that we'd normally put out there to uh, friends and family or even uh, in some cases, but certainly to strangers that we may not know. Right. Well, and I guess you may, not, you may be putting information out that you don't even know consciously you're putting out. If you're shooting video from your hospital room, I mean, there might be data there for even what hospital you're in. I mean, there's, there's, there's subtle things that are going on as well. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, a lot of times it's not even you who's running the campaign. You know, if you're in a hospital bed and in need, it might be a friend or a family member who's doing this for you. And, again, that's, that's a wonderful thing that they can do to try to help. But uh, they may not know what you're comfortable with sharing or they may not know what data is or information is, is there that they're putting online and may not be getting consent from the person in need. Oh, it's so true. And then videos are like, even I just had a, a gallbladder surgery and my wife was there wanting to put all this stuff on social media. And I'm thinking, are you serious? Like, I don't want pictures of me like that there. And it actually might put the patient in a weird position as well, because you don't want to be a burden, but you do have bills and you want to be able to cover the bills. But everyone else also wants to get the the information out there. So it, it, mean, it might put you in a position of having to be the naysayer. Yeah, and, and, and that really um, highlights the difficult position you're put into, because you know, on the one hand, you can say, well, you know, you're in a situation of need, and so you're agreeing, well, this is the way that I, I need to go forward to raise this money, or this is what I have to do. So there's a, there's a sense in which you're agreeing to everything there. But, um, you know, it's, it's such, a, such a difficult position to do that from. Uh, you might be ill. You may not be in your best frame of mind. But also, you know, if this is the only way that you can pay your hospital bills, there's a question of how... Uh, how free this really is, or, or how to what extent you feel like okay, I have you know I can say no, or I have mm. other better options. If this is the only way that you uh, prevent your family from going into debt for you, or you losing your home, or something along those lines, then you know you just you feel like you know crowdfunding is the only way, and I have to give up all this privacy to do it. It might be better than all the other options, but it's you know, a very, very difficult position to be coming from. Yeah. And does it impact your health? Does it impact your recovery? I mean, psychologically, what does it do? Does it keep the problem more in front of you than, I mean, a lot of people I know might not think about some of the bills until they're better and others. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess these are all the dilemmas as we have this new benefit of crowdfunding. We, we also have to deal with some of the consequences. 
Yeah, it, does, it absolutely does create a new opportunity. So again, I, you know, I want to stress that there are a lot of good sides to this, but in a situation where you might want to be thinking about your health or spending time with your family, instead you're asking yourself or your family members to effectively market you to strangers to say, okay, this is a really worthwhile case. This is somebody that you should give money to. And that's just, it's a very awkward position to be put into. Uh, and again, you know, it's, it's, it's great if you can see, succeed with that, but the way that this works is that, especially as strangers, uh, to, to get money, to get success in your crowdfunding campaign, you have to convince other people that you're a worthy person, uh, that you have a genuine need, that you're a sympathetic case, uh, that their money will be well used. So effectively, you're trying to sell yourself to all these people. Hmm. And, you know, that's very unnatural for people to, to have to ask for that and very unnatural for a lot of people to have to market themselves in that way. And it really is absolutely, for some people, effectively a full-time job to, to do that when you'd rather be doing very different things, when you'd rather be taking care of your health. Yeah. And, and yeah, focusing on recovery, you know, dealing with the, the trauma of it all. Uh, I guess crowdfunding, as it's becoming more and more popular, they, the research shows about 60 percent of um, crowdfunding is used for medical causes. Uh, GoFundMe so far, I guess, has raised $930 million for medical funds. I mean, that's, a, that's staggering. That's amazing. Yeah, it's an unbelievable amount of money. And when you look at the numbers of people who face medical bankruptcies, um, uh, uncertainty around insurance, um, you know, concerns about, you know, legislative changes in the U.S. And even in Canada, where I'm based, you have a lot of people who are trying to get dental work or time off work or, or all these needs associated with medicine uh, or with poor health. You know, there is a lot of need out there, so it shouldn't be too surprising we're seeing growth, but you're absolutely right. The numbers are staggering, and there are literally hundreds of thousands of these campaigns going on at any time um, across North America and across Europe, but the United States is a real leader in this and just has enormous numbers of people and enormous amounts of money being raised. Is it – I mean, I I assume that if I was kind of thrown into this world – uh, because of a tragedy or something that I had to deal with, maybe uh, you know you you see a lot of times they'll put it out there for funeral costs um, or to help college tuition for a family of some that's had a had a tragedy. I assume these people probably don't know what they're doing. Like they they know they need the money, they go to GoFundMe, but there's probably fees associated, right? There's uh, marketing fees, putting it on Facebook. I mean. Talk about kind of the business side of this. Sure. I mean, these, these companies are private businesses. For the most part, they're, they're there to make a profit, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But when you go to um, start one of these campaigns, um, sometimes that information is put out there about the fees that might be attached, and sometimes it's not. Uh, sometimes it's sort of said misleadingly that this is a free product or – uh, that you won't have to pay anything to start a campaign. So typically, uh, there's a fee usually around 4.95%. Um, that's charged by the companies themselves uh, on top of everything that you raise. And about 2.9%, somewhere in that range, will also be charged by uh, any credit card companies um, that are processing the transactions. So a decent amount of the money is taken by these companies. Again, you know, they have to cover their costs. They're there to make a profit. But uh, these are things that uh, people starting the campaigns, but also the donors may not know. 
Um, and they do get a lot of guidance. Again, you know, the best interest of these companies is to have a lot of people using their services and um, to be successful in raising the money because they get a piece of all of that. So when you go in to start a campaign, they give you advice about how to sell yourself, how to market yourself, how to be successful in terms of your campaign. So in a sense, they're really trying to fuel this process of putting all this information out there and trying to get more and more people um, participating in crowdfunding and to make it just as normal a part of funding your health care as possible. Hmm. So if you if you put it on like GoFundMe, you'll pay about 5%. If you put it on Facebook, I guess you pay about 6.9%. Yeah, the numbers differ a little bit um, between the different sites. And there are a couple that are nonprofit that don't actually charge anything beyond the credit card transactions. Hmm. But somewhere in that 5 to 8% range is pretty typical. Do you need to act like a charity? I mean, this seems like it's a charitable process. And I know with real charities, you know, there's laws and what you can do with the money, how you spend the money. The minute you put a GoFundMe up like this, is it becoming a charity? Well, with the crowdfunding, it is, it is kind of the Wild West compared to, um, you know, a, 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 an officially established uh, charity that has a lot of legislation guiding it. So in, in terms of whether you have to pay taxes on it or what rules are governing the, the, raise, the raising of the funds or if people can um, get uh, tax deductions for charitable, deduct, for charitable giving to a crowdfunding campaign, I think there isn't really good information out there, and I think that that's the kind of information that's being worked out. Hmm. And it points to another big difference between crowdfunding and these well-established charities. Um, in situations, there are certainly charities that are better run than others, and sometimes you'll hear problems with those. But um, typically, you know, if you're giving to the Red Cross, for example, that the money will be put to certain purposes, and you can track that and and be pretty comfortable with how that's given. But there are cases with crowdfunding that um, there have been certainly instances of fraud. You know, you might have an individual who says that they're going to spend the money on one thing, but then they spend it on another. Mm. And, there's really a lack of follow-up. Um, that's the biggest problem if you're giving to a stranger or somebody that you don't have a personal connection with. Uh, but really, that's kind of what crowdfunding is encouraging, uh, giving to these really large networks. Um, and so there is that danger of kind of a lack of accountability in terms of how your money is used, which at least in the best-run charities, is not as big of a concern. Absolutely. Let's take a break. We are speaking with Dr. Jeremy Snyder about crowdfunding health care and uh, some of the hidden costs and, 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 you know, the pros and cons of using crowdfunding to pay for your health care needs. Stick with us. We'll continue the journey helping you uh, understand some of, the, some of the crazy new things on the Internet that might be saving lives and costing you a little bit. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to The Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone, Dr. Jeremy Snyder. He's an associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. And he's talking about an article he wrote, As Patients Turn to Medical Crowdfunding, Concerns Emerge About Privacy. Uh, it is a great gift. It's a great blessing to have the chance to uh, maybe make or pick up a little extra money when you're going through a difficult time with a healthcare issue or really, I guess, anything you're using it for on crowdfunding. But there are some costs. There's some issues associated with it. And uh, Dr. Jeremy Snyder wanted to, to help us understand that. Thanks for your insight on this, Jeremy. And thanks for being with us. 
Thanks for having me on. So um, when we talk about crowdfunding, I mean, this, I guess, it's it's a pretty new thing. How long have people been using crowdfunding sources and sites? How long has this been out there? You know, some of these have been open about a decade, but um, it's really taken off in, say, the last four or five years. Um, that's when you're seeing a lot more popularity of this. And I think one of the big ways that it's spread is uh, getting news coverage of really these successful viral campaigns. Um, and once we've seen more and more of that in the last, you know, four or five years, uh, it's a sort of thing that's getting lots of popularity and just really rapid, almost exponential growth in terms of um, the number of campaigns and the amount of money that's changing hands. Yeah. Well, you talked about last, uh, last before the break, the fact that, I mean, there's a lot of benefits to this. It's helping a lot of people. And so it's not all negative. But one of the big points you brought up is privacy. And um, because very easily, if I'm in the hospital and my health is in jeopardy, um, then we, my spouse, my family may do a crowdfunding um, a campaign, but I may not actually have given my consent or even be a part of it if I'm really sick. Yeah, that's absolutely a concern. Uh, you know, in, in the best kind of situation, you'd have family members who are checking in with you, maybe getting approval for any images, videos, uh, private information that might be being shared, but. Um, you know, we've a lot of us have been in a situation where you're 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 in pain. Maybe you may not be conscious. Maybe you may not. Um, you have family members who don't want to bother you with this kind of detail. So um, you're not really consenting to what information is being put out there. And what we see with a lot of these crowdfunding cases, they're actually for, um, in some cases, very elderly persons who may have dementia or limits to the cognitive fun, um, functioning, but also there are a lot of young children who are uh, part of these campaigns who really aren't in a position to consent to or give advice about what they're comfortable having shared about them online. I think we all know that you know when you get information out online, it doesn't just disappear a couple of days later. Or right. It's not the sort of thing that you have control over. So it's especially concerning around children where this kind of very private information about them might live on for their entire lives in some situations. Um, and by design, these campaigns are meant to be Googleable. You know, they're meant to be found and accessed by large groups of people. So um, privacy or keeping this information just limited to a few people really goes against what you're trying to do with crowdfunding, where you're trying to share it to as many people as possible. Boy, that that's interesting, too. And you may be as as a family gathering the information to put out there and you may not know clinically or medically what information is what right so you might include stuff that maybe is is information we don't want out there and i guess too now that we have a world too where we don't necessarily trust our insurance companies and there's tension there i mean this is all searchable right so all of a sudden you're giving a lot of private information um and it, and i may not have ever given consent yeah and, you know, I mentioned earlier there's some, some of these concerns around fraud or, you know, people trying to take advantage of this. And the advice that people who are running these campaigns get is that in order to um, make especially strangers, you know, comfortable with giving to you or to assure them that you're a real person with a real illness, it's in your best interest to share as much information as possible. Uh, if you want to convince somebody that you have cancer, you show images of yourself in the hospital, maybe hair loss after chemotherapy, right. maybe you want to show charts, 
you know, you want to put forward this case that, yeah, you're a real person uh, with a real illness who could um, really benefit from uh, giving from these individuals. But that comes at a huge cost to your privacy. There's, there's no way to do this successfully while keeping your privacy intact. It's almost like, I mean, before you go into medical procedure, they always ask if you have, you know, orders written, um, kind of end of life decisions made. Uh, maybe eventually one of the things that would become part of your care package would be uh, some information about crowdsourcing and, and, and how you want that handled. Yeah, that's an interesting point uh, that um, I, I think you're absolutely right that that's something you'd want to talk about ahead of time, especially while you're able to, with a clear head, give consideration to that. But to me, at least, that raises just another issue with crowdfunding that, you know, it bothers me to think that we're in a position where the only way you can get, uh, or we sort of normalize the idea that the only way you can get or pay for the necessary medical care that you need is by running these campaigns. Hmm. You know, I'd much rather live in a world in which through private insurance or as we have up here in Canada through a single payer system, some some method where, you know, worrying about bankruptcy and um, having to rely on the kindness of strangers and that sort of thing is, is not necessarily baked into how we expect to have to pay for our medical resources. It's so, so true. It's, if crowdfunding is really going to expand like this, we're essentially accepting the idea that um, to save our lives, to get necessary medical care in these sort of emergency situations, uh, instead of just um, relying on the idea that we're going to get this care, we have to start up a crowdfunding campaign to um, prevent our loved ones from going into huge debt to pay for our needs. Hmm. And it seems like, uh, because you might in the back of your mind always think, well, I've always got this other thing I could do. I could always do crowdsourcing to raise money for these bills. And you you might even see people choosing maybe not to get insured because they would just do crowdfunding anyway. And But I mean, in a way, it, it, it creates other issues as well. Yeah, and, I, I, and, and, you know, the stories we usually hear about on the news are these really viral cases where, you know, there's a sick child and it raises $100,000 and that sort of thing. But the research shows that the vast majority of these crowdfunding campaigns, you know, uh, 80%, 90% don't meet their targets. So while there is a lot of money being raised and a lot of campaigns out there, it's really the minority that um, raises huge amounts of money and are, are hugely successful. So if you're counting on crowdfunding to pay off your medical bills, um, you know, for the large majority of cases, that's not really realistic. It's not going to happen, is it? Where, where do you see this going in the future? I think it's just going to continue growing. Uh, you know, as you've mentioned, Ucaring and GoFundMe and some of these companies have been posting larger and larger numbers of um, people participating in fundraising for medical purposes. Facebook announced a couple of months ago that it was going to start allowing these campaigns, you know, just to put a donate button at the bottom of posts so that, you know, when you mention that you're sick, you can go ahead and uh, put that crowdfunding option in there. And, you know, it just absolutely seems to be something that's growing. Um, and if, you know, some of the legislative actions in the U.S., um, result in fewer people having health insurance or some of these other problems, you could imagine that contributing to the need as well. Hmm. So it, it's absolutely something that seems to be getting bigger. Yeah. And yeah, you, and then who knows what will be next, right? Uh, 
start sharing money. I mean, you could see people that have huge databases. Hey, I'll drop some information about your need uh, through my database, but I get 10%. I mean, all of a sudden, people start making money on crowdsourcing of medical issues. It's just, who knows where this could go. Yeah, and, you know, Facebook's one of those companies that's run into some trouble with that about selling the information that you post online to third parties to to do different things with, to market services to you. So you can easily imagine, you know, okay, so Facebook's going to take a cut of this, a small cut of this money that you're raising, but it's also in their interest to suddenly know, okay, so now Jeremy um, has had a bone marrow transplant and all these other needs, Mm. and here's his network of friends who are willing to give, and here are the messages that they put. All that private information is useful, and, you know, if you ever go on Facebook, you get, it can be creepy sometimes how, you know, if you mention something in a conversation and do a search, suddenly you're getting these ads that are targeted exactly at your needs. Yeah. So it's really Facebook's business model to share that information with um, people who are marketing services to you. So we should expect if you're doing that for medical services, all that private information, then it's going to be spread to these third parties. Oh, and all of a sudden you're receiving marketing uh, from about in-home oxygen and uh, nursing services at home and, you know, rehab centers. Holy cow. That's kind of yeah. ugly. That, that's that's where it gets a little scary and crazy. What would you suggest to us as family members? Um, what conversations should we be having? When should we be having these conversations? Yeah, I, I think that it's it's useful to have these conversations ahead of time, as you suggested. You know, if you are being ill, that if you know if you see crowdfunding as a way that's going to help you to pay your medical bills, like I said, it's totally understandable to take that route. But try to have those be aware of some of the concerns that are out there and have those conversations ahead of time of what it's permissible to share. And in a big sense, you know, leaning on your neighbors and asking for help, uh, you know, putting that jar for donations at the gas station or at the grocery store for somebody in your community in need. That's nothing new, and it's absolutely not a bad thing. You know, we, yeah. we love to see communities coming together to help each other out. It's just that with crowdfunding, really, um, you know, it's, it's the good and the bad of the Internet. It really takes that to the next level in terms of sharing that information. So I, I think that the best thing can be is if this just makes it easier for community members and friends and family to help each other out. It's really when you're reaching out to networks of strangers and broadcasting that information on the news and really going beyond that, that I think a lot of these concerns are really hyped. Mm. Um, It's absolutely a great service. It makes it, you know, if you can just go on your computer and click and help out somebody or, you know, an old friend from high school that is now thousands of miles away, I think that's a great thing. It's it's when you're trying to turn that into that, you know, lottery ticket of getting a hundred thousand dollars, you know, tens of thousands of dollars raised from, you know, becoming a media sensation. Um, that's a little bit more worrisome, and I think that comes out of the idea that um, crowdfunding is the silver bullet that's going to solve all of our healthcare needs. Like I said, it really isn't for the vast majority of people. Yeah. Um, so, so the best we can do is you know, is a way to, you know. Um, automate and, and make easier the giving to people that we already know. Absolutely, and and also push probably on our on our congressmen and women to to come up with better solutions so that we're not depending on raising all of the money at the last minute. We appreciate it, Doctor Jeremy Snyder. Thank you for your great work and uh, 
Uh, keep up your work there on Faculty of Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University. Dr. Jeremy Snyder's his name. We'll take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. And uh, actually, if you can, be the good. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah, you know, all this great, uh, these great technological advances, you can now put it on GoFundMe and put anything up on GoFundMe and have something all, you know, have a bunch of money coming in out of nowhere. We've had stories where people are buying, trying to get their wedding dress GoFunded or, uh, you know, some plastic surgery done through GoFundMe. It's a, it's a different day and age, isn't it? And so what do you, you know, life, technology, advancement, it's all good, except uh, we still have some good old-fashioned problems as well. Listen to this crazy story out of uh, Greenville, South Carolina. Utility officials say a snake caused a power outage that left more than 4,000 customers without electricity in northwestern South Carolina. Man alive. Duke Energy spokesman Ryan Mosier said, told media outlets that a snake crawled into the substation, disrupted service and left Greenville County residents in the dark at about 5 a.m. Wednesday. It took about 90 minutes to completely restore service. Mosier says the utility constantly works to improve its barriers to prevent snakes, squirrels and birds from crawling, crawling through the electrical equipment at substations and causing outages. But he says it's not uncommon. Um, uh, by the way, you, might, you wonder what happens when a snake causes an outage. Like, does this mean we're going to have like cooked snake? You know, is that the is that the deal? I don't know. So you've got. You've got snakes in a substation. We did snakes on the street or yeah. on the road earlier today. So, so you got snakes on the road, snakes on the substation, eels on the road. What about snakes in a bed? It's one of my favorite. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies. Have you seen the trailer for that? Uh, on the show, I did. But uh, if you well, want a let's refresher, play, let's okay. play it again. Snakes on the bed. Snakes in a car. I have had it with these mother-loving snakes in this monkey-fighting car. Snakes in a toilet. I have had it with these mother-scaring snakes in these fresh and shiny toilets. And babies in a lobby. I have had it with these mothers in distress delivering their small and fragile babies on my squeaky clean floor. Comes the sequel you didn't see coming. Looks like the victim suffered swelling in her left hand due to a couple of snake bites. What do you say, Chief? In situations like these, there's only one thing to say. I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. Uh, anything else you want to say, Chief? Oh, yeah. Had it with these mother biting snakes in these reasonably comfortable beds. Snakes in a bed. Rest in peace. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Happy Friday to you. Oh, I hope it's going well for you. 
got a big plan as well for the weekend. I hope you are locked and loaded. We got a great program for you. You have a plan for the weekend? Yeah. Wow. Oh, I've, I've got a very, very busy weekend. You made it sound like you had a plan for our weekend. I do yeah. have a plan for your weekend as well. That would be great. In fact, everybody's meeting at my house to have a little weeding party. Oh. I have my own weeds to deal with. Well, I know, but you haven't you haven't seen weeds. Well, I've seen my of. weeds. Well, mine are uh, super uh, extra absorbent weeds. But you have an army that you've created on your own. Yeah. To take care of such things. Six people, <sighs> six soldiers to help you. Yeah, six little fighters, we call them, because there's a lot of fight and very little weed pulling. Mm. That's my weekend. Along with a, a speech all day Saturday, I'm mm. going to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir tomorrow. By the way, choir auditions. Mm. So, uh, you know, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir is putting out a call for anybody that wants to sing in the choir. <laughs> I'm wondering if you guys are in. Uh, no. Cannot sing. I thought I heard a rumor one time that you have to have perfect pitch to no. be in the choir. Well, I think they have tests, but I don't know that it has to be perfect. There's a guy in my neighborhood that was in the in the choir, and you would never know it. You're like, you? You're <laughs> really? in the no. choir? Yeah. But they're, like, there is, like, they'll, they may say, okay, can you sing a C for me? And they, I, I mean, I think it's, like, that complicated. Hmm. But or they may give you a C and then they make you go find a J. Um, yeah, just just um, go C D E F G H I J. I'm guessing H-I-J. you're not going to be in the choir based on the fact that you just said J. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. a lot of what they look for is can you sing with a group? Yeah, because there's people that can sing, and you can hear them over the top of every other per- person in the you know three. Yeah, state but that's county, I think that's know. actually what they're not looking. They don't for. want, they want that. people that blend. You got to blend. I mean. Yeah, they want. You, you got to be able to sing with a group, and that's yeah. a skill. By the way, we have people. some people in our, on our staff um, that are really, really good singers, and they're really good at kind of disappearing among the crowd. Yes, like so much so that we forget sometimes yeah. that they're here. Mm-hmm. That's it. Palakiko. Is that who we're talking about? Who? Anyway, we've got a great show for you today. Uh, if you are interested in um, trying out for the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, you'd probably have to come to Utah to do that. But and it live is, here. It's, it's world-renowned, and you'll get to go on tour. It's, it's a great gig. You'll be on the radio and TV. You'll be famous, uh, you and 400 others. But, you know, it's pretty cool. Uh, so uh, that's, that's uh, tonight. Actually, tonight I'm going to a, a summer performance with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Also, um, today we're going to be talking about personal finance, and it doesn't have to be complicated. You just have to pay your bills, Jeff. It's, it's you, 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 know, you just get the, you get the bill, then you pay it, and then you, you try not to get more bills than you have money to pay. So pretty simple. when I'm getting notices that say second and yeah. third yeah, notice yeah. – that just means you, you you need to pay them earlier, hmm. and you got to have the money, so you got to work. You know, so this I'm just glad I'm married to an accountant because this is it's all so true. This is all foreign to me. You are loving it. You really are. Uh, so today we'll be covering that. We'll be replaying an interview I did uh, earlier about um, the index card. It's a little tool you use. Three by five. Little, they probably a little like yeah, the ones you used to put your little. Um, what are they called? You'd, you'd go through your flashcards. It's important to know which it is because, you know, that guides the discussion. Oh, yeah. If you're talking about a three point a three by five mm-hmm. versus like a four by six, two yeah. totally different discussions. Maybe not. Maybe it's just more about your eyesight. 
me. You know, maybe just hmm. same stuff on the same card, just a little bigger, depending how you, how bad you need to see it. Lines, no lines. Again, they, we could do a different show on each one of those. <laughs> I don't think I could. Uh, by the way, we'll also talk about if you have to land your your air balloon in an emergency. Hmm. We'll give you some advice on where not to land it. Obviously, you don't want to hit a power pole true, or a power lines. Right. There's some water uh, hazards. hazards you want to yep. watch out for. Right. We'll get into that. Was this on a golf course or something? Um, kind of. I th- I, or I think it just might be in the middle of Orlando. It's safe to hmm. say there are golf courses in the region. Okay. Yeah, quite Lots a few. of golf courses there. Also, um, you won't believe what Santa Claus has been up to. Uh, high speed well, chase. We'll talk about that. Has he been, been like, kissing mommy again? No. It's always been the big question. He has that one big day a year. Yeah. What does he do the rest? And and this story about yeah. him sleeping all year to be ready yeah. for that night. No, that doesn't work. Right. Idle hands. Yeah. Get you in trouble. What's he gonna do? And we'll talk about um, you know bad dreams or or realities. What happens when your child comes into your room, wakes you up in the middle of the night, and says that there's a bear in his room? Should you believe him? Oh, go back to sleep. It's just a nightmare. Yeah, it's not. There's no bears in your room, honey. Just go back to bed. One of my nightmares is that I'm going to wake up again to my child standing at my bedside staring at me. Yeah, that that happens. That's the worst. Yeah, it's worse. Like when they're saying "red rum, red rum" with their Mm. index finger curling. That's always freaks me out. So we'll get to all of that fun and excitement. Plus, of course, we'll uh, we'll do a little debut of what's coming up on Jeff's show today called Jeffrey. The name of your show would be called. I'm not going to say it. Green cleaning with Jeffrey Liam Simpson. I always remember it, but I keep wanting to call it spring cleaning. Maybe you need to do your spring cleaning That's in the probably, summer. Yeah, there's something subconsciously going on. So we'll get to all that fun. But first to Terry with the headlines. Terry, what's going on? We've been hearing multiple uh, reports about, uh, I guess, updates about uh, House Majority Whip Steve Scalise. Yes, how's his health? uh, Yesterday, he had surgery again. Oh, boy. Doctors treating him for, they discovered a deep tissue infection caused by the bullet wounds. Louisiana Republicans' condition was upgraded from fair to serious. It just doesn't go away for the poor guy. And so the hospital, adding that he will require careful monitoring to see if and when further interventions are necessary. Remember, he was shot during that baseball practice several weeks ago. 2.2 billion people, one-third of the world's population, are obese and overweight, according to a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. The study, which used data from the most recent Global Burden of Disease study, spanned 35 years, 195 countries, providing a new level of granularity uh, concerning the world's biggest public health crisis. One detail revealed in the study. As the level of a country's development increased, so did the prevalence of obesity in men. But for women, there was a larger increase in countries with a lower socio uh, a socio-demographic index. Nearly 40% of the 4 million deaths in 2015 linked to excess body weight occurred among people who weren't yet classified as obese, showing that simply being overweight can be a serious health risk. Yeah. So the, as, as as your your country is you know moves into more developed nation status, I guess the increase in obesity in men goes up. It doesn't seem like. Well, it actually is it just because we're fat and happy. Well, you get more. We're rich. We're wealthy. You more access we're, to food. And yeah, and more access to other things that would keep you from Maybe bad food. Right, and exercise, and we have more entertainment and more media Mm -hmm. and more everything. 
Sirius XM, Satellite 143 BYU Radio. There you that go. alone would make us gain weight. Shameless. We gain weight just sitting here talking about gaining weight. In other news, fantasy sports sites DraftKings and FanDuel, who are daily fantasy gambling sites. Yeah, are they basically. still around? Uh, we talked about them before yeah. and had a, had a guy on to, to discuss what they were. And is it gambling or is it just fantasy sports? Kind of a discussion that way. They have decided to terminate their proposed merger following the objection of federal antitrust regulators. DraftKings, well, probably because there's two companies that do this. And they were going to make them one? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, antitrust. Uh, DraftKings raised new funding earlier this year, while FanDuel stopped new financing talks in anticipation of the merger. Now expect uh, FanDuel to resume those conversations. Per merger documents obtained, each company is currently valued at $1.2 billion. Oh, wow. Yeah. wow. And you can do, like, fantasy NASCAR, fantasy golf, you can do, all kinds of stuff. Jeff does fantasy um, kitchen cooking food. You can do that. Mm. That's a fun one. For a moment, I thought you said proposed murder. And I thought, oh, that's great that they're backing out of that. Oh, that's good. But that's at least we... they're proposing it, not doing it. Yes. Right. And finally, uh, do you read the terms and conditions? Never. When you sign up for some service? No, I you... just always assume they're good people. Really? Okay. This says probably not. No one does. And so inevitably, 22,000 people have now found themselves legally bound to 1,000 hours of community service, including, but not limited to, cleaning toilets at festivals, scraping chewing gum off the streets, Mm. and uh, doing other sort of manual labor type thing. The hopefully a joke clause was inserted into the terms and conditions of Manchester-based Wi-Fi company Purple for a period of two weeks to illustrate the lack of consumer awareness of what they are signing up when they access free Wi-Fi. The company operates Wi-Fi hotspots for a number of brands, uh, Legoland, different places, different restaurants across the U.K. Purple also offered a prize for anyone who actually read the terms and conditions and flagged up the community service clause. Just one person actually read the terms and conditions. Only one person. (laughs) Called them out for it. So uh, they did this sort of thing. So all these people are signed up for 1,000 hours of community service because they legally, they clicked, yeah, sure, whatever, and moved on with the terms and conditions just like everyone does. Oh, Wait, that's really funny, did except you, now everybody will hate that company. Did you say purple? That's what it's called, purple. Oh, boy. Did you sign up for it? You signed <sighs> up for it, didn't you? Jeff. Now, we've talked about <laughs> the UK and their fatbergs. Yeah. Where because they dump all the cooking oil down the drains, they accumulate. And it coagulates and it, into a huge berg, mass, of like an mass. iceberg of fat. And so you have to go in and clean them out. The terms of, of uh, conditions spell out that you're agreeing to do all these different things, including manually relieving sewer blockages. Ooh. Jeff's in trouble. Isn't it like that guy in Indonesia or where was that? Yeah, that the, was that's his job. Uh, Thailand. Read yeah. the terms and conditions. You don't know what's in there. Well, Jeff apparently is signed up then for a thousand hours of fat defatburging. There you go. He's going to break up the that's fat. Great. You know what? Though <sighs> I think you'll, I think you'll be really good at it's it. It's a Jeff. character building moment. Yeah, I like to look at it not like it's not like it's work, but it's you giving. It's you. It's your opportunity to give back to community to thank them for all you've been given. I'm busy enough trying to get rid of my own fat. Yeah. But now what's neat, you'll get to work your fat off as you work the fat of everyone else off of the sewer lines. I think I'll lose the weight from all the vomiting. Uh, Mm. Oh, don't use that word. Oh, sorry. That always makes me gaggy. Speaking of gaggy, let's say you're an alligator. 
right. Don't no, because he'll say that. Gaggy is that what is that uh, a term of endearment for grandma? <laughs> I hope not. We're gonna um, go visit Gaggy. <laughs> do you remember how grandma at her funeral? Do you remember how grandma always used to get a little gaggy? <laughs> That's why we started calling her Gaggy. So if you are an alligator. And you're just in your pond in, let's say, somewhere you know near Orlando, having just kind of a boring day, lounging around. And the next thing you know, you hear, and the screaming people. And out of nowhere, a hot air balloon lands in the middle of your pond. What do you think? I think uh, you're taking an interesting angle on this story. Yeah. This is the angle a lot of news stations wouldn't take, but because this is empty news. I would feel so sorry for that alligator. Why? This is an exciting— You're you're painting him as the victim. No. It's like he was having a picnic and somebody interrupted it rudely. He was was bored. He was bored, and then out of nowhere, a hot air balloon ride, you know, dropped 17 people right into his pond. So that's where the picnic comes in. This is that's where like party the party began. Can you imagine this? A hot air balloon ride in Orlando. The balloon's carrying seventeen people in the basket, and a change in wind direction caused the pilot to change his route. Guess what? He missed some power lines barely, and then the balloon ended up in the pond with a few alligators. You know, I think if I were the alligator, I would want to take a ride in the hot air balloon. Oh, like, oh, what is this? When else are you – I mean, you give, you've got so many chances to nibble yeah. at people, but when are you going to get in a hot air balloon right. and as an is, alligator? This is where I think we don't understand alligators because everybody's freaking out. Like, there's alligators, but the alligators aren't closing in to hurt them. They're just curious. They've never seen a colored hot air balloon land in its pond ever. And they've never seen 17 people where apparently, I guess, I guess the actual um, – the balloon – then landed on top of the people, covering the people. So not only Ooh, were you in the pond trapped. with alligators, you had like a big balloon over you. So there was, let's just say, it was pandemonium. This would be equivalent to somebody coming up to me with a briefcase filled with $1 million yeah, cash. that's right. And just and wouldn't you be curious? Oh, yeah. So you'd get closer and closer. So the alligators apparently came in, and one of the people that was trapped, uh, one of the passengers says, there was adrenaline. It was pumping. It, it, it was pumping, but it was scary. Now we're making fun of it, but it was serious. It was lucky that no one got hurt. Yeah. And no alligators were harmed. That was lucky because that balloon could have landed right on top of them. Can you imagine what a balloon with 17 people could have done to a poor alligator in its own pond? Mm. That could have got crazy. Crazy. Hey, by the way, uh, one other uh, little important uh, story we got to get to because we mentioned it earlier, but Santa Claus, when you have 364 days a year to just mess well, around. There's some prep time for the big night. Not for him. There's a few. He's a I highly mean, trained professional. You think he just jumps in the seat and goes? I think he's got all of his little minions or elves that do all this work. So he just, I think, you've seen the commercial with the Mercedes-Benz commercial? Right. Where he has to take his red sled out? Yeah. Well, apparently, this Santa, uh, Main State Police, said they arrested a driver in a stolen vehicle who identified himself as Santa Claus. After huh. a nearly 50-mile chase, 
where its speeds reached 112 miles an hour. They even had to deploy the spike strips. Wow, Sander was a little unruly there. Yeah. And I didn't know this, but apparently his his street name is Christos Casares. Wow. That's eerily close to Chris Kringle. Mm-hmm. Kringle, yeah. Casares is Kringle in New Hampshire talk. New Hampshire ease. Okay. He drove on busted tires another 15 miles before the troopers caught that guy. I've done, I've done, I've done that before. On flat tires? Yeah. Well, the cops put out the spike strips. And you hit them. It's tough. You're kind of sliding around yeah, the road yeah, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I, I don't like driving yeah. after the spike strips Saint, have been deployed. St. Nick is a crook. I mean, if he's not speeding from the police, he's at Magic Mountain giving out candy to kids. Remember that? That scoundrel. No. There was a story we did where a guy Sheesh. was, Santa Claus, was trying to hand out candy and they kicked him out. That's right. What? We got to keep our eye on him. I think you just got, you've got to make him maybe do community service. Have him sign up for purple. Mm-hmm. Have him go get that balloon out of the pond. See how Chris Christos Casares does there. Anyway, folks, uh, keep Santa busy. In the middle of July, nothing worse than that that crazy Santa Claus is getting in trouble. Oh, these these uh, Santas nowadays. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about why personal finance doesn't have to be complicated. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you make it through life. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend uh, Show today. Uh, we've got a, a wonderful topic and guest. Um, with uh, the book titled The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated. And the author is Helene Olson. You know, tax season is coming around the bend again. And are there times that you struggle with your own personal finances? It's easy for personal finance to get lost and disorganized in the wash of business and our just our everyday life. So our guest today, uh, Helene Olin, is uh, going to give us the solution. She wrote about it in the book called The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated, and she joins us now from New York. Helene, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, good morning. What a, what a fun uh, idea, really, the idea of being able to get kind of everything we need to know about our finances on an index card. How did it, how did it come to be an index card? Well, this is a great story. Um, a few years ago, I wrote a book about, uh, called Pound Foolish um, um, about the personal finance industry and how it had sold us on many things that weren't very good for us as a way around um, dealing with things like income inequality and income stagnation in our unstable workplace, right? Right. And I did this podcast with um, Harold Pollack, a professor at University of Chicago, who you might notice yeah. is my co-author on yeah, the right. card. And at some point during the, um, it was actually a blogcast, sorry about that. At some point during the interview, which was an hour because we had a blast and we just kept going and going, he said something along the lines of, well, truthfully, everything you need to know about personal finance can be put on an index card. And we agreed on that and laughed and moved on. But a number of people who were listening to this um, blogcast were actually kind of fascinated by that. Mm. And they began to write to Harold and say, you should do that. So Harold, without much thinking about it, um, took a card, took an index card from his daughter's knapsack. His daughter was in high school, grabbed a Sharpie, wrote down some notes from our interview, some things he had learned in life, 
and put it up on the Internet, and then it went viral. Oh, wow. And people started writing, both of us. Yep. And at some point, we said, we really need to put all of this in a book. We can't keep answering people one by one by one. It's right. a little nuts. So um, we work. We have jobs. Um, <laughs> so we ended up writing a book and um, had a blast doing that, too, I should say. Well, and then I'm sure your writing on the card got smaller and smaller because you had so many more ideas. And in the end, you came up with what? How many? Like nine? It's, nine it's principles? Nine. And Yes. And we changed it slightly from the original card. Right, but um, it's still the basic card and the base, same basic advice. Well, um, I mean that to me, it, it should be that simple, right? I guess at the core. Right. Well, that was always my point. It's that you know this stuff is very easy, and we have this huge industry that has grown up that basically sells itself by saying, you know, we have a secret way for you to get around the economy. And we have a way that, you know, if you just turn your money over to us, the stuff's really complicated, and we understand it, and we'll help you prevail. And in fact, um, not only are they often not helping you prevail, in many cases, they're making your position worse. Right. And I guess they like it complicated, so you can go to them. You have to go to the experts. Right, because you're too scared to deal with this. It's just too complicated. You don't know the answer, but they do. So true. Oh, it's so true. And so what are some of the principles? Maybe just teach us uh, some of the principles that, that, we, that you think stand out. Well, the first, it starts very basic. You want to build your foundation, right? Right. So your foundation is, is to try to save between 10 and 20% of your income. And we realize you're not going to do that overnight. Um, nobody's going to do that overnight. Um, so we simply say if you can't do that. And by the way, if you can, start now, Okay. But if you can't, you know, even starting small, just get into the habit. And the best way to do that is to make it automatic. Don't, you know, don't rely on yourself to look at your check paycheck every week and say, oh, I can put this amount in savings, Mm -hmm. that amount in savings. Simply arrange it online. It takes seconds of your time. Um, Trust me on that one. So in your online banking, like immediately have it take, once the deposit's made in, have it take 10% out. Right, or what you feel you could afford. Yeah, right. Because the second piece is pay down your credit card bills. Um, we're not saying you should pay down all of your debt. Um, you don't need to consider your mortgage at this point, right? Right. But it, your credit card bills and other high-interest debt, should you have, say, payday loans or something like that, is you, you're going to be paying out more in interest on that than any gain you're probably getting from an investment at this point, and certainly from your savings account. Should, should I pay – but you're really saying uh, cr- start creating the savings even before paying down my debt. Well, the issue is is you need at least an emergency fund. Yeah, right. 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 Because these things – things come up over and over again, right? There are small emergencies that just happen regularly, like whose car doesn't occasionally you know, have an accident or get you – know, break down somewhere or you know, who doesn't um, get sick and need to go to a doctor. Have money put aside for that. That shouldn't come as an emergency, right? Right. And then, of course, greater emergency, lose a job, right? <laughs> have to take, get sick and have to take three weeks off of work instead right. of two days. These are, and your life will be better if you can put money aside for this stuff. There's no question about it. And so once I get my fund, kind of an emergency fund, then go pay off my credit cards and then um, – and just I guess I assume start with the highest interest first, pay off the right. highest interest debt first down. Right. And take a look, good look at your credit cards 
and see what the highest interest rate is and just put, you know, pay the minimum on everything else, put all your money towards and uh, towards that one. And then when that one's paid off, go on to the next lowest interest rate. Um, and trust me, this will save you hundreds, if not thousands of dollars over the course of the time you're doing this. Oh, and um, what, that, what, you know, there's a very popular method out there that says people should pay down their smallest debt first. Yeah, and right. while I respect that, because it does give some people motivation, it, in fact, just leaves you in a much bigger hole. Um, and ultimately, you need to minimize what you're paying out in, in, in interest rates. Right. And, and so your, yours is more just hit, hit the giant, hit the big interest rates first, knock those down. Um, and then, then, I mean, what a joy that would be to see one of your big credit cards finally paid off. I, I think the feeling is intensely happy, intense, intense happiness. Oh, what a relief. And then um, the other thing that you talk about in your, is your rule number three is max out your 401k. Talk to us about that. I think a lot of people are, I don't know, afraid of the stock market today. Well, I mean, this is more an issue of, um, first of all, um, we can talk about the fear of the stock market in a second, but first of all, 401k, this again goes back to the industry, which often tells you simply put the match in their 401k, you know, your employer match, put mm-hmm. the amount up to get that, and then invest in an IRA, which, um, you know, supposedly will offer you greater choices in investment. In fact, you don't need greater choices in investment. <laughs> you need a simple low-fee index fund that comes with low expenses, and that's most likely to be found in your 401k. And this is money that you're not using for, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and it can grow tax-free so that, um, you know, which is true of an IRA as well. But because of the low fees, it is an immense gain to put your money in there. Yeah, and it seems like it's it's taken out before you you knew you took it out. Right, and you don't see it, and that's the main thing. It comes straight out of your paycheck. You don't even know it's missing. Um, And as for the stock market, I realize it is not in a great place right now. In fact, I am writing a column about that as I speak. But um, keep in mind, um, you're not investing for tomorrow. You're investing for 10, 20, 30 years out. Right. And the thing I always tell people, because the argument is, is, well, will the stock market perform like it has in the past? And I can't answer that, and neither can anyone else, despite what they tell you. Um, what we know is the stock market has you know, gained about an average of 8% a year after inflation um, over the past several decades. And that if you go off and invest on your own or you try to do better than that, um, you might. But the chances are really, really good you won't. Um, Only 1% of us actually have the ability to do that. So as I always like to put it, um, you know, just to get this really negative, right, the stock market can go down by 20%, but your alternative can go down by more. Um, It's not like some automatic thing where you avoid a bad investment and you find a better investment. Chances are incredible you'll find a worse one. (laughs) It's true, though, huh? It's sad but true. People don't like to contemplate this. That's why um, I get to write this book, right? I contemplate this. That's so true. Um, Okay, let's do this. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Elaine Olin, who is um, the author of the book um, that is – you know, it's it's basically the index card, why personal finance doesn't have to be complicated. It, folks, it, the principles can fit on 
on an index card. Now, you might need 220 pages of explanation in the end, but um, I think it's a book worth, uh, worth looking into. We'll take a break, come back more with Elaine and learning more of the principles that fit on the business card. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Uh, today we're speaking with Helene Olin, who uh, is the author, co-author of the book The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated. And uh, she's walking us through some fairly basic ideas of um, your own personal finance, like try to save. How about that? 10% um, to 20% if you can. Pay down your credit card bills. She's now been talking to us about um, some of our stock market choices. Rule number four um, – uh, Helene is the um, is the principle about what stocks to buy, what stocks not to buy. Talk to us about that. Well, basically, you shouldn't be buying individual stocks at all. Um, we talk about this. We talk about this quite extensively in the book. Um, but very short is again, you, you're not going to have the ability to outguess the market. The, you know, we all have this idea in our head: we're going to pick the next Google or we're going to pick the next Facebook. Um, frankly, most of us pick the next AOL or the next um, store that goes belly up. Um, we're not really good at this. Um, we're simply not. Um, and by the way, let me make this really clear. When I say we, I mean everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean you, us individually, um, your uncle or aunt who reads the Wall Street Journal every day. I mean the financial advisor at the local brokerage house. I mean the people running multi-million dollar or billion dollar mutual funds and investment groups. Um, It's human. We just can't do it. Again, the surveys show this time and time again. We're just not going to pull this off. Um, Very few mutual funds or um, even hedge funds ultimately beat their benchmarks. Um, It's simply astonishing that more people don't realize this. And yet we all try. We all try because we're sold on the idea of trying. Right. Um, and in fact, all you need to do, really should do, is find a couple of index funds that are properly diversified, and we talk about how to do that in the book. And um, basically, put your money in, set it on automatic, and get on with your life. You'll enjoy it a lot more. Because the the index fund would then have a more balanced portfolio. Well, it's it, it would be a, no, a couple of different index funds, right? Yeah, right. You know, one with bonds, one with the overall stock market. Um, um, but then you're saying, but then get on with it, go live, get on with it. Right. I mean, you know, move on with your life. Um, you're not going to pull this, you're not going to outsmart this. So there's no reason why you should be trying. There's no reason you should be spending your time obsessing about this. So if I'm maxing out my 401k, they're already investing, investing in index funds, aren't they? Well, not necessarily. Okay. Um, you have to go in there and select, um, and one thing is, and that's really important, because usually what happens is if your 401k is automatic, you'll be simply put in a target date fund based on your age. That's a fund that is designed to replicate a smooth, you know, glide mix of stocks and mm-hmm. bonds towards retirement, right? Um, there's one, there's two things with these. Um, first, um, every target date fund has a different formula. Um, again, there's no magic formula to this, right? It often involves stock picking. That means it runs up your trading costs. 
and it eats into the investment principle. Mm. Um, and these costs come out year in and year out, no matter how much the stock market gains. And the, the amount you lose to this is simply astonishing. You know, you hear the a person hears the difference between, you know, seven tenths of a percent and two tenths of a percent, and they think, oh, who cares? Yeah, whatever. I'm trying, right? In fact, these differences like have the ability to eat up about a third of your overall gains over the cost of your life. I mean, it, it's a lifetime of investing. It, it's really a mind-boggling number when you look at it. This is why I think we feel like we need an expert, though. Right, and you don't. Yeah, right. The thing. All you need to do is read the index card, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and you'll find this out. You don't need an expert. That's not to say, by the way, financial advice is all bad. Um, I should point out. It's good to keep you on a steady path. It's good to, you know, keep you investing when you're scared. But this is another key point of the index card. You need to make sure you see somebody who has a duty to act in your best interest. Um, that's something called the fiduciary standard. Yeah, explain that. Really, yeah, this is hugely important. Um, most people think when they seek financial advice from anybody, they're like it's like going to a doctor. They have a duty to act in your best interest. You know, they have a financial Hippocrat- Hippocratic oath, right? And this is simply not true. Um, in fact, the vast majority have no such interest. Um, and the only way you're going to know this, because they can still charge you for the advice, is, is if you flat out ask if they have a legal duty to act in your best interest. Mm. Um, and in fact, many people suggest putting it in an email or getting them to sign something so that somebody can't just pull a fast one and say something like, when would I never act in your best interest? Right. Which of you might course. notice doesn't answer the question. Yeah. Um, and this way you also have it in writing. Interesting. And I mean, here, let me give you a scenario, Helene. I just had the funeral of my mother-in-law and we have a very trusted, actually almost beloved financial advisor who was there at the funeral and we all know him and love him and his entire staff was there. Um, he was almost more of a family friend, even though he's never really been a family friend. He is the financial advisor. And yet, I, you know, you can ask him anything. And he does have this fiduciary standard. And right. it, it changes the game because, uh, I mean, I have people in my own life that sell insurance and I hear them coming around every quarter or whatever. And they almost look for another handout. And I so I. I sat there and it didn't dawn on me till I saw this other man and I thought that's the difference of what – that's the kind of advisor you want in your life. Somebody that doesn't make it transactionally but right. that's, that's in the long haul with you. Right. I mean the thing is that people do need to get used to um, because the, many advisors make it out like this is at no cost to you, right? Right. But that's not true. You know, somebody's paying the bill and if it's not you – you've got to wonder what's going on. Now, in fact, one of two things are going on. Either the, the financial company selling, marketing the product is paying the bill, which means advice is going to be weighted in their interest, right? Right. Or second, the money's coming out and you don't even know it. And that happens too. Um, there's no free lunch out there. I mean, there's a reason this cliche became um, a cliche. And it's really important to keep an eye on these things. Oh. There's no free lunch. Darn it. Um, yeah, but again, as the human nature in us, we, we try to keep looking for the free lunch, the big right. deal, the, the big hit. And you're, it sounds more like you're saying, just chip away at it. Just right. keep exactly. chipping. I mean, when, I, when I wrote Pound Foolish, I interviewed um, one of the big marketing people. 
And he told me, uh, he said, everybody wants a free lunch. He said, I stayed at this big hotel, um, you know, on the, on the luxury floor, you know, the penthouse, you know, special, you know, the VIP floor. And it was all CEOs, and they put out a free breakfast, and it was a mob scene. <laughs> he said, everybody wants a freebie, you know. And right. that's, by the way, so another bit of advice. You get something in the mail that says, come to, uh, you know, come hear a financial presentation at your local favorite restaurant. Yeah. Skip it. Don't do it, okay? You're going to be sold there. something. You're going to be sold something, and chances are 99.9% this is something that's not in your best interest. Huh. That's great. That's great advice. Uh, you just made a lot of people mad, but that's great advice. Um, the the rule number eight that you talk about insurance. Make sure you're protected. What insurance do we need? What's too much? Okay. First and most important, um, you need health care. You need um, housing insurance. You need auto insurance. What's too much is with um, you know auto and housing. You don't need a $500 deductible, right? This is not something you're using every day. Um, you know, at minimum, you know, it, with 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 an auto, you know, a thousand dollars. With a house, it really depends on your budget and the value of your house. I mean, I that that can be my number would be so high because I'm based in New York. You guys would laugh. Right. If you heard it. So, yeah. um, you know, we pay what you pay for a four bedroom house for a closet. I know. Um, it's so sad, <laughs> um, but. The point is, is that's insurance you don't use, but you need it. You know, things do happen, and that's really, it's important to be protected. And I know health insurance is, you know, ridiculously expensive. I think we can all agree on that. Um, But if somebody gets ill, you could be out a lot of money really, really fast. I mean, there is no way to sign up for insurance on the spot if you're in a car accident, say. There just isn't. Um, even with Obamacare, right? Even so with Obamacare, everybody okay. get that in your head. Yeah, don't get, don't have that idea, right? You get hit, you're crossing the street, and something happens. No, it doesn't work that way. You'll be out twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars before you, you know, you even wake up. Oh yeah. Is so, is um what what amount of life insurance should I carry? Is that based on my income? What is that based on? on both um, income and what your responsibilities are. If you're 60 years old and your children are grown up and you're not going to be working in five years, you might not need much at all, right? Right, right. And we tell people term, not anything that's an investment scheme. Again, too many, um, too many fees coming out. We go into that much more in the book. Mm. And, um, and then, so in the book too, you'll be able to help us define maybe how much is enough. Right. Okay. And, you know, the other thing we talk about is um, the other insurance that people often don't like to hear about. Right. And that's the government. Yeah. Um, and we're all reliant on that. So, you know, our last rule is that you should support the social welfare system, the, the social safety net. You know, there's this thing where most of us think, oh, I never take money from the government. What is this? Well, in fact, when surveyors go out there and ask, actually 95% of us at some point in our lives take money. Right. Um, and it's everything from Social Security to Medicare to unemployment insurance to mortgage deductions. This is all, you know, government um, scaffolding around your life. Um, and we want people to be aware of that. Your financial life as you know it is actually not possible without that scaffolding because 
there is simply no way for you to save up enough money to replace Social Security or the vast majority of us. Right. And the same for Medicare. Um, and it's really funny because we all have this way of thinking somehow these aren't government programs, right? It's the infamous sign from a few years ago. Get, get the government's hands off my Medicare. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Like, who on, where on earth did they think it was coming from? <laughs> well, and um, a lot of people are worried, Helene, that it's not going to be around for them. Okay, I, okay this right. is something I talk about a lot. Um, it's not much in the, in the index card, but that's actually simply not true. Yeah. This is one of the greatest myths out there. Social Security, very, very short Social Security, is not going bankrupt. At current rates, it will only be able to replace 75% of income in the 2030s. But the increases that would be needed to, um, to make it whole are, for the vast majority of us, ridiculously small, We're talking like you know, less than $100 a year if it was done immediately. And the other thing that would be huge that most people do not realize is um, Social Security stops taxing, taking you know, money out of your income for it at 118500 That's called the payroll tax cap. Um, if they simply eliminated the payroll tax cap, about 85% of the deficit would vanish tomorrow. Wow. Um, people simply have no idea. And the reason they have no idea is because the interests that don't want that money taxed have a lot more voice in Washington and in the public discourse than in people earning fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year. Right. Um, and when people hear this, they are simply astonished. Um, did you know that? No, no, I'd never heard that. Well, I mean, in a way, think about because those people that are making above one hundred and eighteen thousand are still going to draw on their social security. I mean, right. many of them, unless laws are changed. So. And there's no reason for laws to be. That's right. Why not just allow it? Too. Yeah, allow it to just keep charging above one hundred eighteen thousand. Right. And yeah, and it would totally make sense. And it's simply astonishing to me that people do not realize this. Well, Um, I mean, I guess that's it, because if you start all that money that they want those taxes, that's the Wall Street effect, isn't it? That's why everyone's talking about Wall Street. Right. And um, it's simply astonishing. It is simply astonishing that more people do not know this. Um, Hmm. And I I tend to not reflexively blame media um, as being a part of media. I'm a columnist at Slate, as you right. probably know. But in this case, I really blame the media for this. This should be, whenever there's a conversation about Social Security, this should be the first thing set. Yeah. And, um, and it never even comes up. Well, especially in this election. I mean, is Bur- this seems like what Bernie Sanders would be talking about. Well, he is talking about Does it. Does he bring it up? Um, Ber- Bernie Sanders is talking about it. Um, and Hillary Clinton seems to have indicated she supports it as well, though it's a little bit murkier there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you want to know why Donald Trump is doing so well on the Republican side, I can give you a pretty good hint. Did he talk um, about this? He is, he is not talking about the payroll tax cap, but he is the only one of the candidates who has specifically said he will not cut back Social Security from where it is right now. Huh. The rest of them are talking about, you know, cutting the benefits or raising the retirement age, which is one of those things that sounds like a great idea till you recognize that age discrimination is immense and that most people leave the workforce not because they want to, but because they either get ill, a family member gets ill, or they get laid off and they can't find another job. Right. Um, so, yes, we're all living longer, but we're not all living longer in better health, and we're not living longer um, with jobs available to us. And um, the third thing is people most reliant on Social Security are actually not living as much longer as the people who need it less. Mm. Um, 
if you have a really nice, high-paying, white-collar desk job, um, like you or me, um, our outlook's pretty good. But if you're a manual laborer, your outlook is not so great. Oh, so true. And those are the, those are the people who will suffer the most, who need Social Security the most and will suffer the most from the age being raised. I mean, it really is. It's, it's interesting you bring it up as like your ninth point. It's, but it's, it is part of our financial planning and it needs to be f- part of our – it's also part of our giving, right? I mean, you're it, – it's, it's huge. I mean, the majority of elderly people right now, and we're talking about people who we all think of as prosperous, right, right. would be living in very straightened circumstances without Social Security. Um, it, it, they literally would. Um, and ditto Medicare. People really need to have this banged over their head. Um, and I think it's very easy to forget because most of us don't get a Social Security check where most of us are not over right. 65, right? Yeah. Well, and if people could trust government to manage it and protect it. Well, we can. They I mean, have so far. And, you know, they've protected it a heck of a lot better than our investments on Wall Street have been protected. Think of it that way. No, that's totally true, huh? <laughs> Darn Wall Street again. Back to the Wall Street. Well, we appreciate you, um, Helene. That's, I think it's an, a very uh, – I think it's a well-thought-out book. The Index Card's the name of the book, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated. You can find it at all the bookstores. And Helene Olin, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me on. You bet. Uh, again, you can go to Helene's um, website, uh, HeleneOlin.com, and, and find out more about her, her book, uh, Pound Foolish – which was the first book she wrote. She's she's appears everywhere in the New York Times, Salon, Slate, you name it. The Atlantic. She's been in all the big, all the big uh, uh, media sources. So she's a great resource. Resource. We'll take a break, folks. Uh, come back. Wrap up this second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks. We're going to make you rich one way or another. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, a quick story for you. Uh, 11-year-old Zach Landis comes running down the stairs late at night shouting, Mom and Dad, there's a bear in my room. Can you imagine waking up to your kid saying that? Well, his parents didn't know if they were having a bad dream or being pranked. What's going on? They then uh, talked to Zach. They went back up to his room, and apparently Zach told the Alaska Dispatch News that he was awoken in the middle of the night with a loud crash. A black bear crashed through his window. And then scratched and pawed at his uh, his walls. Can you imagine that? He said the bear smelled like a wet, muddy dog. And it hit the foot of his bed, walking right by him, scratched at the walls, and then apparently went and jumped out, out of the window again. That would be so scary. Terrifying. This was in Alaska, by the way. Sheesh. You got to watch out for that. Speaking of things you got to watch for, uh, in just about a minute and a half. Screen cleaning with Jeff Simpson is going to be on. What are we going to talk about, Jeffrey? Well, you don't need to be scared. No, you don't need to be scared. You, you don't just need, need to, to watch scared. out for it. So uh, it's our 10th show. It's awesome. So we are going to be discussing the career of a famous filmmaker whose 10th film will be released next weekend. Wow. This Not going to tell exciting. you who it is. Okay. okay. But our 10th show, his 10th movie, it's a you're, big deal. You're doing a great job. And in the show, you talk uh, movies, but also all kind of all forms of media as well. But how to make sure you have a, a, a clean media experience for your family. Right. And we're going to be introducing two new segments on the show, one of which involves Cole and me going head to head. We're actually going to a movie court. Ooh, movie court. 
with Judge – what do we call it? Judge Simpson. <laughs> That's exactly right. Okay, it sounds great. Screen cleaning, folks. You can hear it in about a, about a minute or so it will begin. Um, thanks for the weekend – or thanks for the week. We hope you have a happy weekend. And uh, remember, we do this show to help you be the good in the world. We're here Monday through Friday, 9 to noon. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You can find us on iTunes, on TuneIn, on Stitcher. We're everywhere. Check us out and uh, stay with us as we now turn to screen cleaning with Jeff Simpson. I don't know if I can do the show today, Cole. What do you mean, Jeff? It's our 10th show. We're going to be highlighting the career of Christopher Nolan. It's a big show. What's the matter? It's last week's show. I, I messed up the show intro. And I've been a mess myself ever since. Jeff, why do we fall? What? Why do we fall? Why? So we can learn to pick ourselves up. Thanks, Cole. You still haven't given up on me, have you? Never. Okay, then. Let's do this. Wow, that was dramatic. I feel better already, and for some reason I slipped into a Batman voice there. Wow, welcome to the show. This is Screen Cleaning with Jeff Simpson, and uh, Cole Wissinger is here with me as always. Absolutely. And today, as Cole mentioned, we're going to be highlighting the career of the wonderful filmmaker Christopher Nolan, who uh, is coming out with his 10th movie next weekend, if you can believe it, Dunkirk. And uh, oddly enough, this is our 10th show here on Screen Cleaning. There are no coincidences. That's right. We thought, what better way to ring in our 10th show than by discussing one of Hollywood's greatest filmmakers, Christopher Nolan. And uh, a few of the films we will not be discussing here on the show today because they are R-rated. But uh, after his first three films, he repented and uh, learned uh, that, you know, there's more money to be made and more family-friendly fare. So we're going to be talking about those other seven films here on the show today, as uh, well as Cole and I are going to be uh, going head-to-head in a, in a certain debate. We're going to be going to court, if you will. Mm-hmm. A friendly court. Absolutely. But a court nonetheless. Uh, and as you know here on the show, it's our, it's our goal to bring to your attention and put a big old spotlight on and all that is good in entertainment – so that you can find entertainment for your families to enjoy all together. And uh, we're saving your Fridays and Saturday nights is really what we're doing. So as always, we like to start off our show by giving you some of the better news and entertainment news. Let's start off with the best sequel news. Have you heard of a little film called War for the Planet of the Apes? I've heard of it. Okay. So it's the third in the the newest trilogy of the Planet of the Apes franchise. Right. No Charlton Heston. No Roddy McDowell. No Mark Wahlberg. No Mark Wahlberg, who was in the Tim Burton film that a lot of people really don't like. Uh, these, this is another great trilogy. We're going to be talking about one of the best trilogies ever made, which Cole yeah. might not agree with. Uh, later on the show. But this is another trilogy that has done very well, and they seem each film seems to get better as they go along. This is the last in the trilogy, and if you look it up on Rotten Tomatoes, currently it's sitting at either 93% or 94%, depending on when you look. But that's a pretty darn good score, 
And uh, it's PG-13, and it's out this weekend. So that's our best sequel news. In our best franchise news, Cole, you got to be excited about this one. Oh, yes. Daniel Craig back as James Bond. Woo! How excited are you? Very excited. I, I'm a big Daniel Craig Bond fan. Some of my favorite James Bond films have starred Daniel Craig, mm-hmm. including Casino Royale and Skyfall. And I actually really enjoyed Scepter as well. I know it didn't get great reviews from the critics, but I thought it was more like the older Bond films than any of the other Daniel Craig versions. But yeah, I I can understand where that's coming from. But the point of the new Daniel Craig is that it's different. It's it's this True. new new Bond for a new age kind of thing. Yeah, I still enjoyed it. It was great. It had some good classic villains in it. Um, but to tie this into the show that we're doing today, mm-hmm. did you also hear that the producers of the Bond franchise are having talks with? None other than Christopher Nolan to direct a film. Now, talking is different from what we're seeing here with Daniel Craig being signed on. Right. It means they've had lunch. The Rock is talking about running for president in 2020. Right. <laughs> a lot of people can talk about a lot of things. Exactly. It's one thing to talk. It's one thing to get it down on paper. So he hasn't signed anything but I think a lot of people would, uh, you know, would start to salivate at the idea of Christopher Nolan directing either the next or one of the future James Bond pictures. Because, I mean, we're going to talk about his seven films in the show here today. And although we are going to rank them, really, there isn't a rotten film in the bunch, in my opinion. Cole might disagree, but they're all quality pictures. Cole's got a huge grin on his face right now because he can't wait. He's chomping at the bit to prove me wrong, which is not going to happen. It's not going to happen because, uh, you know, he's a great filmmaker and I'm often right. (laughs) So uh, anyway, that is the best entertainment news that we've got for you here today. But we do have some more good news because today we are introducing a brand spanking new segment here on Screen Cleaning, and here it is. Screen Cleaning proudly presents jolly good shows, classic films that have stood the test of time and are now being inducted into Jeffrey Simpson's prestigious video library. Thank you for joining us on Jolly Good Shows. We film scholars here at Jolly Good Shows have often discussed among ourselves the amazing comedic talent of such entertainers as Chaplin, Fields, Keaton, and we would be remiss in carrying out our scholarly responsibilities if we did not mention the works of Carey. In the 1994 comedy classic Dumb and Dumber, two imbeciles embark on a cross-country adventure together, and, of course... Hilarity ensues. How dim-witted are the two idiots in question? Well, Oscar Wilde said, There is no sin except stupidity. If we are to believe Wilde's rhetoric, then the sins of characters Harry Dunn and Lloyd Christmas are red like crimson. There is something therapeutic about watching Harry and Lloyd experience mishap after mishap, So it is with great interest in your well-being that we present this important clip from today's film, Dumb and Dumber, 
in which Harry and Lloyd are standing in front of a fire, attempting to stave off the cold of the Rocky Mountains. I can't feel my fingers anymore, Lloyd. They're, they're, they're numb. Ooh. Maybe you should wear these extra gloves. My hands are starting to get sweaty. Extra gloves? You've had this pair of extra gloves this whole time? Yeah, we're in the Rockies. Good show, old man. Jolly good show. We shall return in a month's time to reveal our next inductee into the archives of Jolly Good Shows. This is a 90-second movie review for the film War for the Planet of the Apes on BYU Radio. This is the third installment of the latest Planet of the Apes series. Andy Serkis reprises his role of Caesar, leader of the apes. An illness is affecting humans and killing them, and humans are blaming the apes for it all, so apes are in hiding. Woody Harrelson plays the colonel, and he finds where the apes are hiding and kills two of them in their sleep, thinking he has killed Caesar. Instead, he kills Caesar's wife and son. Caesar decides the apes must move elsewhere, but he will not go with them so he can get his revenge. This film really got my attention. It is amazing that the motion capture of the actors' faces can project so many emotions. Andy Serkis can really make you feel something with his technology. The story moves along really well and kept my interest as new characters were introduced. Woody Harrelson's character is ruthless to everyone in this film. Now, if you've not seen the other two most recent Planet of the Apes films, there is a quick story review, but those films are good as well. I'm not sure if this will be only a trilogy of films, but I would go see another one. As the title says, this is a war movie. There are battles during this film with guns blazing and people and apes being shot and killed. Apes are forced to do manual labor and are held in a camp. Caesar is tortured and the final battle scene is massive and destructive. Some bloody wounds are visible and there are many explosions, but not much in the way of profanity in the film. War for the Planet of the Apes is rated PG-13 and I am giving it an A-. Thanks for listening. I'm Sean O'Neill. This has been a 90-second movie review on BYU Radio. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. As we teased earlier, we're going to be highlighting the career of Christopher Nolan, who started out with a very small film called The Following, which we will not be discussing today. Uh, It was followed by a couple of other R-rated films. Again, we won't be discussing them because that's not what we do here on Screen Cleaning. But the fourth film uh, is the beginning of uh, A Beautiful Friendship. What movie, Cole? And a beautiful franchise. Ooh, I love it. I love it. Okay. So what we're going to do here, we're going to take the next six films because the 10th film is not out yet. It'll be out next weekend. And Cole and I are going to discuss those and, and even rank them as we go along. And uh, the first couple of films are going to be very similar I mean, our picks are going to be the same, but then we, Cole and I start to splinter off from There's each other from there. Somewhere. Yeah, a clear divide. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about his fourth film, which was Batman Begins. Now, I need to, in full disclosure, I was not looking forward to this movie. In fact, I was adamant, adamantly opposed to this movie because of what came before it, which was Batman and Robin, the Joel Schumacher turkey 
that uh, tanked this franchise for a good decade. It put it, it on ice, as it, Arnold Schwarzenegger might have said. Everybody chill. Uh, Batman Begins. I went with a group of friends, was dragged to see it, and ended up leaving the theater blown away by what I had just seen. Christopher Nolan somehow resuscitated this franchise by getting away from the cartoony, ridiculous campiness of Batman and Robin and making the Batman franchise very much grounded in reality. He used practical effects as much as he could and uh, used a little bit of special effects because he had to. Um, but the the villain in this is pretty strong. Now, maybe not the strongest, but it's a good villain to get things going in the franchise. I loved it. This would be my number three pick of the six films we're going to talk about. How about you, Cole? So Batman Begins is my fourth favorite okay. of this chunk of Nolan films. All right. And I don't feel as strongly about it. Um, I th- Obviously, it is much better, and it did turn the franchise around, and it's probably... Up until that point, my, still my second favorite Batman. I mean, Keaton did a beautiful job personally in Batman 89. Not Buster Keaton, but Michael, Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton. Uh, but the rest of the movie around him, just it's not as strong as what Nolan brought to the whole franchise. So, okay. All right. So that would be your number four pick. Right. What would be uh, – let you talk about uh, Christopher Nolan's fifth film. Which is my third pick. So this is my okay. third favorite and it's called The Prestige. Mm-hmm. It also stars Batman, uh, Chris, uh, Christian Bale here. And he's a rival illusionist or magician or whatever you want to call it with Hugh Jackman. Yes. And they go back and forth and back and forth here in this kind of period piece where they're – just constantly trying to one-up each other. And The Prestige gets its power from a big twist ending that I wouldn't... I'd be doing it a disservice if I spoiled because you have to go into it. The whole the whole movie is leading to this twist and what it's going to be because, as with a good magic show, us intelligent individuals that watch it are always trying to see how it is they do it. Yeah. And so while you're distracted and trying to find out how they do it for the whole time... Then they hit you with the twist at the end. It's a beautiful creation. It keeps you on your toes throughout, and it's entertaining. And I love how they start the movie off with a close-up of all these top hats on the ground, and you hear Christian uh, Bale's voice saying, Are you watching closely? So they let you know right off the bat, like, you need to pay attention. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the sad thing about this film, and I I went back and forth. I didn't know if this was going to be my third or fourth pick, but – Ultimately, it was my uh, my fifth pick. Oh, so what I just said didn't make any sense. My fifth pick. Um, the sad thing about this film is that it came out the same time that another magician movie came out called The Illusionist with Edward Norton. I think a lot of people were confused about which movie they were seeing. Mm-hmm. But uh, go and see this of the two because it is the better film. So the the next movie that he came out with was... A little film, you may have heard of it, called The Dark Knight. If you've ever been to IMDb and seen the top movie on there, you might have seen it. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but as far as I know, this is the only superhero film where an actor won an Oscar for acting. 
I can't think of any other. sounds right to me. Yeah. I know Jack Nicholson was nominated for Best Actor for 1989's Batman. Mm-hmm. But Heath Ledger was the one that ultimately won Best Supporting Actor for his performance as the Joker in The Dark Knight, now, which came out in 2008. Halle Berry did get a Razzie for Catwoman. That's true. So I if we're talking about award <laughs> credential. There you go. And she showed up to the ceremony, too, to accept oh, the award. Yes. So The Dark Knight is another film that I had a really interesting experience with. I was so excited to see it because of Batman Begins. Saw it on the giant, you know, four-story IMAX screen. It may have been six-story IMAX screen. And uh, my wife did not enjoy this film. She was so affected by Heath Ledger's performance that uh, she didn't want to let me ever see that movie again. Um, I may or may not have snuck out to see it again. But uh, the point is, this is a film that was just so epic in scale and such a huge budget. But really, where the film's heart lies is with the performance of Heath Ledger as the Joker. He is just – I mean he kind of describes his character later on in the film when he says, I'm kind of like a stray dog. You know, I, I wouldn't know what to do. I, what does he say? I'm chasing a, cars. Chasing cars. I wouldn't mm-hmm. know what to do if I found one. So he's kind of jittery and all over the place and unpredictable. To me, he's kind of like the dramatic version of Jiminy Glick where his, vo- <laughs> where his voice goes really high like this and then it goes really low. Um, but yes – Everything from his made-up accent to the way his mannerisms go, everything is totally integrated to this truly crazed individual that he's portraying. And we're going to talk about this film in our next segment after we come back, But uh, and it involves the music of The Dark Knight. But again, this this is the greatest superhero film I've ever seen and my number one pick for Christopher Nolan's films. Also my favorite Christopher Nolan hey, film. Hey, all right. Quite possibly my favorite film of all time. I don't want to just give that out willy-nilly. Whoa. But it to me, The Dark Knight is the gold standard. If there's a argument to be made against it, is that the that Heath Ledger's performance outshines Batman, that it's more of a Joker movie than a Batman movie, or that it's it's not a real superhero movie because it's too grounded. It's just mm. it's just a cop, you know, cops and robbers heist movie that is based on comic book characters, but if you just look at it as a movie, not as a Batman movie specifically, it's a beautiful movie. That's right. It's not perfect. I mean, I would probably change things maybe in the way of casting. I'm not a huge Aaron Eckhart fan, and, uh, you know, there's probably 30 minutes too long or so. But anyway, that's that's a different discussion for mm-hmm. a different time. So what's the next film that he made, Cole, and where does that lie in your picks? Following the chronology now, so I was in high school when The Dark Knight came out. I was in middle school when Batman Begins came out. So I, I've i really grown up with this being my Batman franchise. And so by the time I'm graduating, the summer I think before I went to college, I went to the drive-in to see a movie called Inception hmm. that I knew nothing about going into. Oh, and I, just loved, I love that experience. Wanted to see a good movie. It was recommended to me. And after I saw it, it was a Friday night that I went to the drive-in to see it and whatever the double feature was. And... I went back the next night to see it again because this is a movie when you get to the end, you realize just similarly to The Prestige that there was so much in the beginning of the movie that meant so much that you didn't realize because you didn't know where the movie could be going. And that ending really upsets a lot of people. And the ending is just so spectacular. I love the ending. By way of summary for the four and a half people that haven't seen this movie in the universe, (laughs) Inception is about Leonardo DiCaprio and his team of... 
of skilled people in diving into the dreams of other people. And it's a heist movie. In so order it, to but get it, things. Instead yeah. of stealing something, they're implanting something or placing something into somebody's psyche, I guess. And it starts off – the cool thing about Inception is that that's not where the movie starts off. They start off as just your normal – team and it's not even the team that ends up being there but just a team of going in and stealing things yeah going into someone's brain instead of someone's actual vault Mm -hmm. physically going into the vault that's in their mind but by the by the crux of the movie the whole inception part of it is them turning that on its head even and going to implant something as opposed to taking it out it plays with the ideas of dreams i mean i i don't think i'd thought about dreams that in depth Interesting. until then I, all the all the little things that we all kind of know that happen in our dreams but we've never talked about got brought up in this movie how it seems like you're in a dream for a long time when yeah. really you wake up and it was just a five minute nap or you know just several yeah. how when you're just starting to wake up the whole world feels like it's crumbling down and visually chris nolan did that how the whole world is kind of tumbling down on top of them as they're waking up. And we wouldn't have the film Doctor Strange without Inception because it borrows very heavily from Inception. And I will say that up until this point, Christopher Nolan's films have been very light on the special effects. This movie has a lot of special effects, but he still tries to use as many practical effects as he can. The actual action, the fighting, and the the movement of the characters is all pretty grounded still, even if you're in yeah. a literal dream world where you can do anything. So would that be your number two then? It is also my number two. That is my number two. Okay, so the next film that he did, we're actually going to skip because that we're going to have an entire segment dedicated to his next film, The Dark Knight Rises, and that'll make more sense as we go along here. The last film uh, to come out before his newest release, Dunkirk, next weekend, is a film called Interstellar. Now, I mentioned earlier that looking at all these films, I don't think there's a bad one in the batch. Having said that, I will say... If that there's a weaker is, one. This is my least favorite of the films that he's yeah. done, which is interesting because it's his most grand in scale and ambition. And... Uh, He spares no expense on the effects and the music and what can I say about Interstellar? I mean, it's basically a film where these astronauts are going into space to try to find a new home for humans to inhabit because pretty soon Earth is going to be uninhabitable. Am I right on that? I only saw it the one time. Right. uh, Yes, and there's time plays a very... There's a little bit of heavy-handed, like, we're the ones that did this to the planet stuff, especially at the beginning. There's a little throwaway line about how we used to think that the moon landing was real when really it was fake, or maybe it was the other way around. It sounded ridiculous. It's a self-important movie, I will say that. Uh, Christopher Nolan is a little bit on a soapbox. Very entertaining, though. We're going to talk about the music of it later on, but this would be my number... Six pick. So my least favorite of Christopher Nolan's movies. However, I would watch it again. I still think it's a good film. It's just not it's not up to par. So, Cole, I think you are also going to put that as your number six, right? It's my oh. fifth <gasps> favorite. Oh, because that's I another think there te- is a worse. That's one. a tease. Mm-hmm. That's a tease for the segment that's coming up. Well, there you have it. If you haven't seen any of those films, all great films, all uh, PG-13 as well. So uh, check them out. We're going to take a break. When we return, we're going to be discussing another aspect of the Christopher Nolan films, and that is the soundtracks when we return. 
This is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. I don't know about you, but my I think that's my heartbeat intensifying as we're listening to this music. This is the soundtrack from the upcoming film Dunkirk, which will be out next week. And I cannot wait to see this film because it actually Christopher Nolan's getting away from telling superhero stories or science fiction stories. And he's telling a film that is probably... Uh, the film that is most based in reality of any of his films because it tells the story – it uh, tells the story of 400,000 troops that are trying to get home and, of course, it's easier said than done at the end of World War II. And it tells it from three different perspectives, the soldiers in the sky, in the sea, and on the land. And boy, does it look good. And – and if you hadn't noticed as we were going through his actual chronology, every other film up until this point was a Batman movie. Yes. Um, he did um, – he started with Batman, then Prestige, then Batman, then Inception, then Batman, then Interstellar. So this so should be Batman's Batman movie. Now having Instead, said that, there are two Batman, Batman villains in this film. You've got Tom Hardy. Right. And you've got – I've never known if it's Cillian, Cillian. Murphy – he plays the Scarecrow and Tom Hardy plays Bane. Yeah. They're both in this film. And apparently Tom Hardy has like five lines in the whole thing. So that ought to be interesting. Anyway, we're going to be talking about the music. I wish he of... had five lines when he was speaking like Bane. Oh, we'll that's – come on. Don't uh, tip your hand before we've played it. Okay. Um, <laughs> we're going to be talking about the music of Christopher Nolan films uh, because they play such a crucial role in the success of his films, especially in uh, the Dark Knight trilogy, which we'll talk about here in a second. But, uh, Cole, I'm hoping that you can play the clip from Interstellar because although I did mention it as my least favorite favorite Christopher Nolan film, one thing that really stood out to me in the in this film was the music. The music was just so grand and beautiful. Anyway, let's just take a listen and we'll talk about it. So it starts out with a little water dripping, and that water dripping sound actually kind of morphs into a tick-tock of a clock, which is interesting because time plays such an important role in this film. The astronauts, they are on a different time plane than everybody back on Earth. So, and sometimes even their other astronauts as they hop from planet to planet and from their yes. spaceship down to the planet. So they, go, they know going into this mission that by the time they get home, the people that are younger than them are now going to be older than them if they're still alive. Mm-hmm. So, And you can hear that clock playing throughout this. And the stakes are really high, obviously. So Hans Zimmer is the composer, and Christopher Nolan apparently gave him one page of notes. He says, I'm going to tell you the fable at the, end of the, at the center of the story. You work for one day, then play me what you have written. 
And uh, Hans Zimmer took that advice and ran with it. He conducted 45 scoring sessions for this film, Interstellar, which was three times more than for Inception. Wow. Which had pretty good music of its own. Yeah. Okay, so let's get to the next one. Um, this one sends chills up down or up my spine all the time. This is the very opening of the film. So it's entitled Why So Serious? So we know who it's introducing. Yes. So it's based around two notes played by electric cello, solo violin, guitars, and a string section. And uh, throughout the piece, Zimmer uses razor blades on string in- instruments to achieve the tortured, twisted sound to accompany the character on the screen. So this is the Joker's theme. And it's just slowly sliding up. The great thing about this song, whenever you hear it playing, you know that the Joker, if he's not already on screen, you know he's coming. He's about to. So if you don't see him and you hear this, you know he's coming. What I love about this is when the first time I saw this, I remember several key Joker scenes where I did not breathe or it seems I did not breathe through the entirety of the scene because I didn't know what he was going to do. I was so affected by the performance and the music that accompanied it that I didn't breathe. And it seems during that string introduction that there's no break. They just keep going and going. So that kind of goes along with not being able to breathe. It is genius. I love this. This has got to be my favorite soundtrack of any of the Christopher Nolan films. Wow. Yeah. So Dark Knight, favorite Christopher Knight or Christopher Nolan film, and also favorite Hans Zimmer score. So there you go. So what? which one are you going to talk about, Cole? So I want to talk about the music that's in Inception. You mentioned that he's got a pretty good team up here with Hans Zimmer, and it continued on with Inception. And the, there's just kind of interesting tidbits about the music in Inception. Um, if I play a song like this... It reminds you of the song in the movie that is unique because music, when you treat music in movies, you can do one of two different things to it. It can just be a soundtrack that's for us to feel something, or it can be actual music that the characters can hear. Mm -hmm. In Guardians of the Galaxy, the soundtrack gets a lot of attention because it's a cassette. Like, half the music is just a cassette that Star-Lord's actually listening to that we also hear. But this film is crucial to this, or this music is crucial to this film. Absolutely. It's kind of their time cue, again, time playing another really key key piece in a Nolan movie. Um, This is their time cue as to when to jump in and out of the dreams and things like that. But also, as they go down in the dreams, time gets distorted and treated differently. And the interesting thing that happens when you do that is that you get a sound like this, which a lot of people just associate with pretty much every trailer imaginable nowadays. It started in Inception, and what that started off as is a slowed down version on trombone Ah. on this big old brass section that Hans Zimmer put together that was a slowed down version of the, the... the singing song that I played yeah. earlier. Interesting tidbit about that song La, whatever, from the film La Vie en Rose, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the actress or the the singer of that song 
was played in the film by Marion Marion Cotillard, who is in Inception as well. It all connects. Yes, it all connects. Okay, and then we already did Dunkirk, right? Yeah, we. Okay. And just to mention again, the when I first saw that teaser trailer, when I didn't know anything about the movie other than the the little cards that they were putting up that this is by Chris Nolan. He directed The Dark Knight. Yeah. Go see this movie. And then at the very end when you see just all the soldiers looking up, that's all you know about the movie. But the music tells more of a story in that trailer than anything else because it gets your heart beating fast and you know right. that something is counting down to something and again that ticking something clock, is about to happen interesting another another interesting tidbit here this is going to be under two hours long which is unheard of in a christopher nolan film and right? we'll be talking about that in the next segment okay also. okay so there you have it the uh the scores in these christopher nolan films a lot of them composed by Hans zimmer play such a crucial role in the way that we feel in the way that we enjoy these films and ultimately in the success of these films. So good for you, Hans Zimmer. Not that you need our congratulations, but uh, you've got your millions and millions of dollars. But keep up the great work and we look forward to hearing the music from Dunkirk. We'll take a break. When we come back, Cole and I are going to be going head to head. We're heading to the court, the movie court, when we return. This is Screen Cleaning. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. As you know, we like to try to keep things civil here on Screen Cleaning, uh, which is a little ironic because I'm about to take Cole to court over an issue that we just cannot seem to agree on. It seems like a lot of times during this show and during our conversations before and after the show as well that we don't agree on very many movies. We wanted to highlight the works of Christopher Nolan because we can agree on so many of his great ones. Right. We both agree that The Dark Knight is his best film. And that Inception is his second best. And that is unprecedented territory for the two of us. But now we want to talk about the bottom of his filmography. So this is a film that for me came in at... Number four. And, and for, for you, me is dead last. Wow. Wow. I can't believe you're saying this right now. Well, I'm, I'm prepared to take you to court. There's no money involved, but uh, I'm going to take you to the movie court. What you're witnessing is real. The participants are not actors. These are actual movies produced in a California movie studio. Both parties have agreed to cease their fighting and have their dispute settled here in our forum, the movie court. All right, Cole. So here's how it's going to work. You're going to have 60 seconds to give your case against The Dark Knight Rises. And when there's a 10-second warning, you'll hear that sound. And when uh, you're finished, I'm going to give my argument for The Dark Knight Rises. And again, I'll have 60 seconds. And then I might have another debate if we have time that I need to take up with you in the movie court. Are you ready, Cole? I am ready. Okay. 60 seconds starting now. Okay, so The Dark Knight Rises is obviously the weakest of his Dark Knight trilogy that's accepted by most, but it also kind of 
ruins a lot of the things that I loved about The Dark Knight. It establishes a villain in a similar way to The Joker. It's just never as compelling of a villain as we get out of The Joker. You can never hear a single word or understand a word that Bane is saying outside of that mask. And even though Tom Hardy has a physical presence that's larger than mine, um, it's nothing compared to the Bane that we get in the comic books where he's an actual kind of infused monster that grows to be three times the size of Batman. When him and Batman have his fights, it's just a sparring match and they punch each other a little bit. Even the most cinematic moment that we've gotten in the comic books when Bane breaks Batman's back, it is kind of ruined in this movie because it's it, there's not much that goes on to get us there and to lead up to it. And then afterwards, he just kind of gets out of it. And it's an hour too long. All right. I heard your argument. And now I'm going to give my argument for The Dark Knight Rises. And I don't even think I'll need 60 seconds. But 60 seconds on the clock starting now. So the reason that the Batman is the best superhero by far is because there is nothing super about him. The emotional and dramatic stakes are highest in his films because he is not only deeply flawed, but more importantly, incredibly vulnerable. And Batman is the most vulnerable in The Dark Knight Rises. The film drags our protagonist through the mud throughout the film and us along with him. As terrorists take over Gotham City, we sit on the sidelines with our hero as he loses hope and then learns to pick himself back up one last time. I know that the ending is maybe a little bit of a cliche, but it doesn't matter because at this point we're three films into it and Christopher Nolan has roped us in so well that he's got us. And I love the satisfying ending that is a little ambiguous, as all good endings are, and it gives us hope. And that's what really what we need in this day and age. Yeah! Yes! I even incorporated a... A Batman Begins line in there. Did you catch that? I did. Okay. It was okay. (laughs) But is the ending ambiguous? Like, Michael Caine sees them. They're both sitting right there. No, what I mean by ambiguous is that, um, well, you don't, that was a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Anyway, um, I love that it hints at what's to come next. But then it ends, and you know that Christopher Nolan's not making any more films, so it's up to us to decide what the future is for the Batman franchise. It it copies an ending from The Dark Knight, though, only this time we started at the same place that we end. We got that ending of, you know, is it better to tell the truth or tell a little lie to help people? And then we spend the entire movie kind of neutering that message and saying that really it doesn't matter and we end up at the same place where it's kind of a lie that Batman sacrificed himself and we're going to build a statue in his honor but really he's just off in France having tea with his girlfriend. So uh, the 60 seconds are up and we've gone over so I I request that Cole's last remarks be stricken from the record and they shall be. I think the verdict is in and uh I think the verdict is that there are probably more important things for us to be arguing. Well, we shouldn't be arguing at all, but more mm-hmm. important items that need resolution. And we're going to leave this one as ambiguous as a Christopher Nolan ending. And we're not going to tell you who won this one. You decide. It's all up to you. We didn't even have time for our other debate, but we'll just uh, – I have a feeling we're not going to agree on this one. Who's the better Batman, Christopher Bale or Christian Bale or Ben Affleck? Go. Ben Affleck. I say Christian Bale. Anyway, 
We're going to leave that one ambiguous as well and let you decide who's He always right plays second wrong. fiddle in his own movies. Christian Bale can't get a break. Speaking of fiddling, we're going to go after this break to our expert fiddlers at BYU Sports Nation. That is a segue. <laughs> we'll take a break. Hopefully you've enjoyed the movie court here on Screen Cleaning. And uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson, and I have the wonderful honor of speaking with Jerem and Jason at BYU Sports Nation. How are you guys doing? Ever come back because it's root, root, root for the mariner. Ah, you would go there. You know, I... Why, why the old-timey voice? Because <laughs> the old-timey organ. It matches. I'm right, I'm right along there with you, of course. Get I off root- my hand card. <laughs> I root for the Dodgers first, but I lived in Seattle for about five years. So yeah. I, I, you know, of course, they didn't have a winning record until I moved away. Just like the Seahawks didn't win the Super Bowl until I had moved away. Mm. So Coincidence? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, I have a bone to pick with somebody that's not there. Oh, oh um, yeah. I, oh, I'm in. Let's so go. So Spencer Linton is on the BYU Broadcasting softball team. Oh, no, I have two bones to pick because there is another certain someone who shall be named, uh, Jerem Jordan, who uh, defected to another team. Like a good Cuban would. So we no longer have Jerem Jordan on our softball team. Too many errors for me over the years. By you personally? Yeah, and okay. the team. <laughs> I'm, you know, playing, I'm playing with a, a different team that just... Makes the simple plays that have frustrated me. What so is often. this? What is this softball team you guys? You can speak call of? me the Gordon Hayward. You want? Oh, you know, burning Jerem's jersey. We I'm actually on a number one seed. <laughs> we in have a different division. We have a great team. <laughs> we have a great team. We we won the first game. We won the second game by default because they didn't have enough players. And this third game, we didn't have enough players. Spencer Linton was not one of the players that showed up, so we had to forfeit. No comment. Okay. <laughs> so, intramural slow pitch, dudes softball in the summer. Should have called me up. Tradition like, like no other. <laughs> like so no other. It sounds like he's letting you down too because he's not there today. Oh no, it's all good. It's it's listen. It's vacation season. It's va- it's vacation season. In two weeks, fall camp begins, and we're kind of in it, right? Um, for until like May. So okay, Ju- July like, is please, the vacation chill. month. Yeah, and if there's the, the hardest working man in BYU Sports showbiz is Spencer Linton. That guy is on BYU Sports Nation every day. He is calling more games than anybody in the BYU Sports world. I mean, he is all over the place. Okay. For the record, that that was just a little bit of faux bitterness. Yes. So. Oh, no. There can't be real bitterness against Spencer. He's, too, <laughs> he's way too nice. Yes, yes. He's pretty great. Um, hey, Cole and I uh, had a discussion. We've been talking about the films of Christopher Nolan today. Yes. Okay. I, I want to say something. Yes. I don't want to know anything about Dunkirk. We didn't say anything about Dunkirk. Yes, you did. You were reviewing it, weren't you? No, 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 no. We haven't seen it. We didn't review it. We oh, just we, you, you were, were just talking about okay. Christopher Nolan movies. Anyway. Yes. Yeah. We, we played a okay. snippet. specifically okay. said, I, I cannot hear any of this conversation. Get it out of my ear. I don't want to know anything <laughs> pull, about Dunkirk. I pulled my earpiece out and was like, let me know when they're coming to us. 
Yeah. No, but I, with that in mind. Sorry. I just took Cole to the movie court, and he had an argument against The Dark Knight Rises, and I had an argument for The Dark mm. Knight Rises. Mm. So maybe the two of you can decide who won that argument, even though you didn't hear it. Uh, I'll go with the four, because I really like that movie. It was great, yeah. Are we saying it is the best of the three? Wait, oh, no, no, no. Argument? That's not the, the argument? argument. The argument, uh, so that was came in as my number five pick of his, no, number four pick of Christopher Nolan's films. Oh, okay. That was dead last for Cole. Dead last? Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's unforgivable, really? really. Wow. Yeah. No, dead, dead last is a short film about the stalker. <laughs> that so, one. Now, wait I've a, seen all his films. Before we get into what's coming in on your show, I want to hear I want to hear your your best pick of Christopher Nolan and your least favorite pick of Christopher Nolan. Best is The Dark Knight. Yeah. We all we both Dark agreed Knight? on that. See, yeah. I, here's the, you know what? You can call me crazy. I will. You're crazy. But I love Batman Begins. Oh, so do I. I think it's I I think I like that movie better than I like The Dark Knight. His worst movie is The Fall is Following. That's the one I'm talking about. Really? Yeah. Okay. So like Insomnia Pretty good. Is Mem- the one? Is Memento it- really good? Yes. Is Insomnia the one with uh, with Robin Williams? Yes. So we didn't talk about any of these because yeah. they're all rated R. Like, um, Interstellar, so- Inception, the trilogy of The Dark Knight. Oh, so good, right? Interstellar. Boom, 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 boom. Okay, Jason, what's your least favorite? My See, I'd have to look it up. I- all right. So of all of them, I don't know. I mean, probably if I had... I think a case could be made, though, that the prestige is, is like, top two, by the way. So good. Uh, I would say, I, I guess if I have to pick. Have I, you seen I have Memento? not seen Memento. I haven't seen a lot of these. You need to see Memento. What is Doodlebug? It's a short. Oh. Yeah, I, I mean, that one. <laughs> I haven't seen all of them. I don't know if, I, if I'm, if I'm like, can say this, because I haven't seen all these movies. I've seen, obviously, Inception, Interstellar. I guess of all of them, maybe Interstellar, maybe. And if that's and I loved the, Interstellar. If that's the worst one. That's yeah, I mean, I loved it. That's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, it's on that's my DVR the worst one. right now at home. He's gold, Jerry. <laughs> gold, Jerry, gold. <laughs> okay, so what's coming up on BYU Sports Nation today? We are talking about uh, something uh, connecting to yesterday. Today, uh, yesterday was what questions do you have going into fall camp, which is 13 days away now. So today we ask, what do you think you know about the BYU football team? We'll discuss that. Yeah, we're also going to have a couple in-studio guests today. We will talk with David Nixon, uh, who, by the way, his, uh, his jersey number at BYU is 43. That may play an important role in today's show, so remember the number 43. Hmm. Uh, also, K. John Brown, one of the newest BYU basketball players, he will join us in studio to talk some Cougar hoops. Ooh, that sounds like a good show. So coming up in four minutes and 50 seconds, gentlemen, go home, rewatch those Christopher Nolan films. Yes. And uh, thank you for settling that debate, by the way. We didn't have a verdict, an official verdict, but now we do. Uh, I am right and Cole is wrong. We are the Aaron Judge and Jury. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you guys have a good weekend and have a great show. Thanks, Jeff. Ah. Boy, it feels good to be, uh, well, I don't want to gloat. That seems wrong. That seems wrong. The Dark Knight Rises and so all, does Cole. also had a kangaroo court <laughs> that didn't matter anyway. Um, and so I don't think that the ruling here is uh, as just as it could have been. How cool was it, though, that, that uh, the court was uh, led by none the other scarecrow. than the Scarecrow? Bringing so he, it all back. He's the only villain that was in all three films. Love it. Anyway, I think we've beaten that 
I don't want to say horse to death, but uh, there it is. Anyway, uh, as you know, we like to give you a little segment called Panning for Good. You know our mission on screen cleaning is to help you find the best entertainment around. And one way we do that is by shining a light on a particular movie, actor, performer, or story in the segment we call Panning for Good. There's good in them dire hills. I'm really excited about today's pick for Panning for Good because it actually started out as a book and, of course, like many books, ended up being made into a film. It's a film or it's a book that came out in 2001 called Flipped. Have you ever heard of Flipped, Cole? I don't think I have. Okay. Uh, It takes place in the late 90s and it involves – the story is told from two point of views or two points of view, one from a young boy – and one from a young girl. And it's basically a a romance between these two characters, but not in the way that you would think. The boy uh, has this girl move in next door to him, and when he's telling his part of the story, he can't stop talking about how annoying she is and how he can't stand her and how he wishes she would go away. And this sweet girl is all about service and kindness. And, of course, she has a crush on this boy that has wants nothing to do with her. Well, as the story goes along, she gets a little disenchanted by him because of some of the choices that he makes. And so they kind of flip their position, if you will. That's why it's called flipped. And now this boy starts to recognize that there are some admirable qualities in this girl while the girl starts to distance herself from the boy. So, like as I said, it was made into a film directed by Rob Reiner, one of the great directors. We've been talking about another great director, Christopher Nolan, on the show. He directed it in, and it came out in 2010. Um, the difference between the book and the movie, though, is that he has shifted the timing of the of the story, and it's, it takes place in the 60s. Very cute film. It's a film that my mother loves because it's about characters performing service for other people and being kind. Uh, really cute film about adolescent romance. You've never seen it, though. I've not. It kind of bombed. It was made for so four, no one else 14 million and it, won, it only earned like a million, Aww. but definitely one you should check out. I will. And other films you should check out are the films of Christopher Nolan because he at heart is a storyteller. And boy, oh boy, is he a solid storyteller. Boy, does he know how to spin a yarn. And... He may spend a lot of money spinning those yarns when he might not need to, but I'm not going to complain because I've enjoyed every single one of his films. And he's got another one coming out next weekend, Dunkirk. His 10th film, and congratulations once again, Jeffrey, to your 10th show. Thank you, Cole. You're a part of that success. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. We'll be back next week to review that film, Dunkirk, with Rod Gustafson, hopefully. And uh, until then, you can hear us every Friday at 9 a.m. Mountain Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Join us next week when we talk about Dunkirk. And we'll also be speaking with Neil Harmon from VidAngel. Until next week, talk to you later. <laughs>